Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. It's on to the knockout stage for the Men's Soccer World Cup Tournament in Russia. Sixteen teams remain. Tomorrow, France faces off against Argentina, both former champions. Twenty years ago, France defeated Brazil, and it was seen as a defining moment for the country, not just for sports. For many, it heralded a new era of racial harmony. But it didn't quite turn out that way. Adeline Sear has the story. When France won its first and only World Cup on July 12, 1998, the nation erupted in delirium. More than a million people descended on the Champs-Élysées to celebrate. <laughs> Alban Traquet is a reporter for France's leading sports daily, L'Équipe. He says it was a historic moment for the country. The two major moments of collective euphoria in terms of crowds on the street are the liberation of Paris in 1944 and the World Cup victory in 1998. A new documentary looks back at the 20 years since the win that made all of France proud. It features interviews with players from that legendary team, including defender Lilian Thuram, who has this burning question. La victoire de la Coupe du Monde a été un moment essentiel dans le questionnement. The World Cup victory was a defining moment for questioning what we are as French people, he says. The French team was composed of players of different colors and different religions. Can we also accept this in our society outside of sports? Thuram was one of several black players on the team. In addition, there was the iconic Zinedine Zidane, the French player of Algerian descent. 
People nicknamed the team Black Blanc Beurre, white, black and Arab, a play on the French flag's colors, blue, white and red. Many politicians would parade the team's image as a shining example of a successful multicultural France. Moi, je me rappelle euh, le lendemain, le 13 juillet, euh, de femmes qui... Euh, qui Reporter Alban Traquet remembers that the day after the victory, he saw two women carrying a flag bearing both French and Algerian national colors. He says it displayed a spirit of cultural togetherness, but it didn't last. In fact, four years later, Jean-Marie Le Pen, the far-right leader of the National Front, stunned France by advancing to the second round of the presidential election. He didn't win, but in the past, he had famously criticized the French team for including players from, quote, foreign countries. Louis-Georgetin says he was always skeptical of this idea of a multiracial team somehow bringing friends together. Tain is with the group CRAN, a coalition of black associations. He says even though today's national team includes a more diverse roster of players than in 1998, the racism that you saw 20 years ago still persists, especially in sports. It was the case with tennis champion Yannick Noah, for example, he says. When he won, it was France won, and when he lost, it was the Cameroonian lost again. It happens all the time, including in soccer and its national team. When the Black Blanc Burr team won, it was a win for France, and when they lost, it was there are too many blacks in the French team. Even worse, says Stamp is when soccer players are the target of racial slurs. Today in France, when black players enter the stadium, you can often hear some fans making monkey noises, he says. There have even been cases where a player got sanctioned instead of the offenders when he complained to the referee. Just last month, there was a violent incident in Corsica. When a soccer team from Le Havre arrived to play a game, their bus was attacked by local fans who threw rocks and chanted racist insults. There were more insults during the game. France's professional soccer league says it's investigating. Reporter Alban Traquet says it's true the black blanc beurre spirit of 1998 didn't lead to significant progress on racial attitudes, but he says some things have changed. He says the team inspired many talented young players from disadvantaged backgrounds to pursue the sport professionally. What is certain is that soccer is one of the most popular sports today and that it's inclusive. For kids in training clubs, they learn that the best members play. It's obvious today when you see that we have a very diverse French national team and it's the best players who are in it. For the world, Aline Cyr, Paris. There was some sloppiness in Phoenix where they found the body. The local PD got involved. These were taken at the scene by a crime reporter. These were run in the press. I trumped up a story about a crazy Indian on the loose. Never underestimate the public's willingness to blame the red man for 
anything they can't explain. For years, the American Library Association has given out a Children's Literature Award named for Laura Ingalls Wilder. This weekend, a division of the ALA voted unanimously to rename the award. This over concerns about the way that Wilder portrayed Native Americans and Black people. NPR Books editor Petra Mayer has the story. Yes, Little House on the Prairie is a classic, beloved by millions. But let's just take a minute to remember the awful way Wilder described the Native Americans her family encountered. She wrote that they smelled of skunk, had hard, glittering eyes, and came constantly to the little house, demanding food and tobacco. More than once, her neighbors repeat that infamous slur, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. These books are painful for some readers. Because of that, having this name attached to the award meant that this award had really mixed resonance. Nina Lindsay is the president of the Association for Library Service to Children, which gives out what's now called the Children's Literature Legacy Award. Lindsay says the change isn't meant to erase Wilder. In fact, her work is still important. And her name is no longer the best name for this award. And and we recognize both those things are true. Lindsay says the ALSC spent months surveying librarians and readers on their feelings about Wilder and that most of her membership supports the move, although some have struggled with it. I would caution people against reading too much into this. That's Caroline Fraser, the author of Prairie Fires, a biography of Wilder. Fraser says removing Wilder's name from the award doesn't necessarily mean taking her work off the shelves, too. But she also says your average eight-year-old shouldn't have to read the little house books without some background. Instead, Fraser says, we should read Wilder the same way we read other troublesome classics. If teachers are going to teach them in a class, they need to teach them with the relevant history. The ALSC's Nina Lindsay agrees that Wilder shouldn't be banished. It is precisely because people should be reading and discussing Wilder's work that we recognize that we needed to change the name of the awards. Next up, she says, her organization will be looking at all its other awards to see if any further changes need to happen. Petra Mayer, NPR News. Pam? Yeah? Did you see Oprah yesterday? No, I didn't. I, uh, I'm going to be a father. What was Oprah about? Angelina Jolie was on, and she adopted a baby from Asia, and she said that it changed her life, and that really inspired me. So I want you to look in to see how much a little Chinese baby would cost. That's a really big decision. I know. Maybe you should wait before you adopt. Well. Or not adopt. Just do it, okay? Roy's sister looked into it, and the application alone cost $1,000. Uh, um, well find out if there's a cheaper, less expensive baby out there. Black babies cost less. Every year, thousands of children born in other countries are brought to the U.S. by way of adoption. But that number used to be tens of thousands. So why has the number of international adoptions in the U.S. gone down so much? And Piers Ashley Westerman explains. When my parents wanted children but couldn't have any of their own, they decided to adopt from another country. They chose the Philippines. Here's my dad, Paul Westerman. Actually, my sister had already adopted, and they had lived in the Philippines, and we already had three nephews and nieces that were from the Philippines. In our mind, we thought if we were going to do an international adoption, it would be good that they had cousins that were from the Philippines, and that would be a connection to the family that they might not have if they were from somewhere else. 
At the time, my parents didn't realize what they were part of. It was the late 1980s, and in their small corner of rural western Kentucky, hardly anyone was adopting babies from abroad. But the U.S. was in the midst of a decades-long wave of international adoptions. In different stages throughout our nation's history, Americans have been responding to children in need. That's Ryan Hanlon with the National Council for Adoption. He says conflicts like World War II, the Vietnam War, the fall of the Soviet Union and others have prompted Americans to open their homes to children seen as vulnerable, innocent victims of forces beyond their control. I think initially it was more of a humanitarian call out to Americans. There is an appeal through many Christian churches to open your homes to children in need. Hanlon says international adoption into the U.S. really took off during the Korean War. It was spearheaded by a couple, Harry and Bertha Holt, who decided to adopt eight children from South Korea. Then they began systematically helping others adopt. They formed an organization. Uh, it was the first international adoption agency. Over the last six decades, Holt International Children's Services has placed some 40,000 children with parents in the U.S. and remains a leader in international adoption today. My parents used Holt because in the late 80s, they were one of only a handful of agencies allowed to facilitate adoptions from the Philippines. It took roughly 10 months for my parents to get through the process. Word arrived that they could bring me home right before Thanksgiving in 1988. My mom, Sonia Westerman, remembers leaving on Thanksgiving Day for the Philippines capital, Manila. She didn't even get to eat Thanksgiving dinner. Instead, she boarded a plane alone with a bag of clothes, diapers, bottles, and baby toys. When I got over there, they met me at the airport. They took me to see you, I guess, almost in that afternoon. The driver took her to the heart of Mary Villa, a home for unwed mothers located at the time in Malabon, a city in the Metro Manila area. She was tired after the long flight, but excited and alert. They didn't let me go into the nursery. They brought you out to the gardens or the little courtyard. And you cried a lot. And you looked up and then you grabbed onto my blouse and then you wouldn't let go. I, of course, don't remember any of this. I was only 10 months old. I also don't remember when I officially became an American citizen two years later in 1990, just before my younger brother was born. Eventually, my parents would have two biological children. The number of transnational families like mine would continue to grow. In the 90s, China opened its doors and eventually became the country with the most adoptees placed in the U.S. The number of international adoptions continued to climb, eventually peaking in 2004, when State Department numbers showed that almost 23,000 children were adopted into the U.S. Then the drop-off began. Adoptions have not fallen off because there are fewer people wanting to adopt children from abroad. Adoptions have fallen off because there were fewer children available to adopt. That's Mark Montgomery, an economics professor at Grinnell College in Iowa. He co-wrote the recent book, Saving International Adoption. The most up-to-date report from the State Department shows international adoptions are down 98 percent since 2005. For various reasons, the countries sending the most children to the U.S. have faced a backlash over international adoption. There's been resentment in Russia of adoptions by Americans after a Tennessee woman sent a seven-year-old Russian boy back to Moscow on a plane alone, saying he had emotional problems and she couldn't care for him. 
That's from an Al Jazeera report in 2012. That's the year the Russian government officially banned adoptions to the U.S. It was also done to retaliate for the U.S. imposing sanctions on Russian officials suspected of human rights abuses. China still allows adoptions, but they're heavily restricted for a variety of reasons, including a growing Chinese middle class that has been encouraged to adopt more Chinese babies. And Guatemala clamped down after it was revealed that the adoption system was corrupt. Some parents were even having their babies taken away without their permission. Officials say those three countries alone account for 80 percent of the decline. And all this has made it much harder for parents looking to adopt now. How did you get out of school today? Uh-huh. Shayna and Abe Kaufman live in Harrisonburg, Virginia. They adopted their son, Hayol, from South Korea. Shayna Kaufman was also adopted from South Korea. She never learned Korean, but she sends her five-year-old son to Korean school. As I sit in their living room, Hayol tells me how that's going for him. I don't know a lot of Korean. Kaufman says who better to parent a Korean adoptee than a Korean adoptee? And she thinks that, in a way, it's easier to be an international adoptee today. Because there are so many more stories out there. With YouTube and blogs, I found a lot of comfort in reading blogs about Korean adoptees. I think that with technology and the way we can communicate... Yeah, it's it's different than it was when we grew up. In 1984, when Kaufman was adopted, it only took five months. The Kaufmans started the process to adopt their son in 2012. From his referral date to custody date was almost exactly two years. There was a lot more paperwork. I mean, the paperwork we have for his adoption is a foot high. <laughs> South Korea is another country that has heavily restricted adoptions as it's become increasingly wealthy. Many experts also argue that policies put in place over the years meant to regulate international adoptions actually make it more cumbersome and expensive. Kaufman says the couple spent over $30,000 to adopt Hayo. Ashley Westerman, NPR News. Also... Allow me to apologize to other families formed through transracial adoption because I am deeply sorry that we suggested that interracial families are in any way funny or deserving of ridicule. The day Brian Freeland's life changed forever, he was five months old. He left Seoul, South Korea, flew over the Atlantic, and landed at SeaTac Airport, straight into the loving arms of his new parents. Here's his story for Radioactive. I've always known I was adopted because I have white parents. In school, people talked about what traits they got from each parent. Their eyes from their mom, their hair from their dad, their personality, a mix of both. I envied them. Being adopted is complicated. I got a second chance at life, but I also feel like I'm stuck between two worlds, Korea and America. One of my favorite Disney movies is Hercules. In the movie, Hercules is also stuck in between two worlds. He's a son of a god, but he's trapped on Earth, trying to figure out who he is. I would go most anywhere to feel like I belong. I think we can all agree that middle school's pretty terrible. Let me take you back to what my middle school years were like. Matson Middle School in Covington, Washington, populated by mostly white kids. Once other kids found out I was adopted, a few would make jokes, like two whites don't make a wong. Or, since I had wider eyes, they would ask if I saw the world in widescreen. A kid even told me my birth parents gave me up because they didn't want me. That was a fear I'd always had myself. 
Was I unplanned? Was I meant to happen? Was I put up for adoption because I was a mistake? And then there are also the stereotypes that come with being Asian. You must know Kung Fu. You probably have a tiger mom. You must be a math genius. I heard these stereotypes so much, I actually started to believe them. I thought, maybe if I conform to these stereotypes, I'll fit in. In high school, I took Algebra 3-4, which I thought would be easy. Homework? Nope. I've got this. Fail tests? It doesn't bother me. I know I'll pass the next one, because math is easy for Asians, right? I ended the year with a D. So if all Asians are good at math, then why did I fail? I'm the outlier. That's a math pun. I tried to fit stereotypes to be accepted, because I thought that's what people wanted of me. But I hate math, so why pretend? I started to realize that in a mostly white school, I would never fit in. Everyone perceived me as Asian, but on the inside, I felt completely white. Maybe if I was around other, more native Asians, I'd feel more Asian. Maybe I'd fit in. In 2015, my family flew over to Korea. On the flight over, I had to explain to the stewardess that my sister and I, who's also a Korean adoptee, don't speak Korean. I felt like I could hear her thoughts. They look Korean, so why can't they speak Korean? It made me feel very self-conscious. Feeling like an outsider in America, I thought Korea would make me feel like I belonged. I thought that since I looked like everyone else, I'd fit in. But I didn't speak the language, didn't understand the culture, and didn't have Korean mannerisms. I felt devastatingly lost that entire trip. I'm an outsider in the US, and I'm an outsider in Korea. Where do I belong? Since childhood, my parents enrolled me in a summer camp for Korean adoptees, where we'd learn a little Korean, eat delicious Korean food, and learn the very important skill of how to use chopsticks. But I only went one week out of the year, so it was hard to make genuine friendships. I was never completely comfortable, partly because I was so insecure with myself, but also because we were teenagers, and we all remember what being a teenager was like. Recently, I was told about another community called Asian Adult Adoptees of Washington. My hope is that I can discover who I am as both a person and as an adoptee, with the help of these older adoptees who have more life experience. If this were a perfect world, I'd have a close-knit group of friends who are also adoptees, people who know what I've been through. I wouldn't feel the need to explain why I don't look like my parents. In a perfect world, I'd feel more comfortable and confident knowing who I was as an adoptee, knowing where I come from and having the closure I need. I don't want adoption to be stigmatized. I want it to be celebrated. From Radioactive, I am Brian Freeland. NAACP. Yeah, NAACP. I bet y'all don't even know what it stands for. Testing niggers, alligators, apes, coons, and possums. Let's listen now to something President Trump said back in May to supporters at a rally in Tennessee. And this is why we call the bloodthirsty MS-13 gang members exactly the name that I used last week. What was the name? Animals. Animals. Our Code Switch team has a series called Word Watch, where they unpack the history behind controversial phrases and words. Today, NPR's Shireen Marisol Maraji takes on Animal. I've been talking to a lot of people about the word animal since the president made headlines last month for using it. The experts, a neuroscientist, sociolinguist, a philosophy professor, and historian Ibram X. Kendi. I think it's critical for First and foremost, people in our time to recognize the seriousness of what this language can do 
connecting it to uh, the violence that has already occurred in this country. The violence of slavery, when black people were consistently referred to as beasts. To justify mass murdering and kidnapping of these people. The violence that came after abolition in the form of lynchings, when black men were depicted as ferocious animals out to rape and devour white women. Native Americans were called savages, wolves, lice, their children, nits, says David Livingston Smith. He's a philosophy professor who wrote Less Than Human, Why We Demean, Enslave, and Exterminate Others. So yes, the Native Americans, dehumanization was a very, very, very important feature of the bloody history of this nation. You know, all nations are born in violence, but we Americans have a very difficult time coming to terms with the truth. More truth. Devils, the word used to describe people of Japanese descent before internment during World War II. No dogs, no Negroes, no Mexicans, red signs in the windows of businesses across the Southwest in the 1950s. And that's the short list. Sociolinguist Otto Santana is compiling a list of his own with help from his students at UCLA. They've been reviewing President Trump's language about immigrants starting from the time he declared his candidacy. There are hundreds and hundreds of examples of the language of immigrants. There's only a handful that speak to immigrants as humans. Santana says the president consistently characterizes people migrating from Latin America as illegals and criminal aliens. But study after study show immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than people born in the U.S. The child of Guatemalan immigrants, Kimberly Seron, is one of the students who spent long hours helping Santana comb through Trump's speeches and tweets. I was disheartened, really, to use American as my identity. Am I a part of this nation? Because... Clearly, you don't think I am. Joe Concha, media reporter for The Hill, says President Trump uses informal language, and the media's made too much of these animal references, allowing hyperbolic comparisons to language used during slavery or the Holocaust. When President Trump compares MS-13 to animals, they are. (laughs) They really are. And if anybody but Trump says it, no one even blinks twice. Didn't Hillary Clinton once call gang members, um, oh boy. Super predators. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People did give Clinton heat for that during her presidential bid. But this does touch on something I heard from all the experts I spoke with. Everyone's susceptible to using dehumanizing language and being misled by it. A neuroscientist told me our brains are pre-wired to attribute negative things to outside groups. So when you hear an MS-13 gang member's an animal, you're susceptible to ascribe those traits to their entire ethnic group. Another thing these experts agreed on... Now's the time to take heed and brush up on history. Shireen Marisol Meraji, NPR News. Is that a real gun? Yeah, yes, this is a real gun. Do you kill people? No, if some guy's hurting someone, I try to shoot him in the leg or something just to stop him. Mama says police misshoot black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? An East Pittsburgh police officer has been charged with criminal homicide after shooting an unarmed teenager in the back. 30-year-old Michael Rosfeld shot 17-year-old Antoine Rose three times after pulling over a vehicle that he said matched the description of a car that was involved in a drive-by. Cell phone video surfaced on Facebook shortly after the incident, showing Rose trying to run away as the shots were fired. Protests erupted in Pittsburgh over the weekend, demanding justice for Antoine Rose. Here's the district attorney addressing the case earlier today. 
Rosfeld's actions were intentional, and they certainly brought about the result that he was, look, he was looking to accomplish. He was not acting to prevent death or serious bodily injury. It's my position that he is not entitled to a justification charge to a jury as a defense, inasmuch as under Pennsylvania law, if you are effectuating an arrest, you have to show the person to be arrested has committed a forcible felony. As I said already, Antoine Rose didn't do anything in North Braddock other than be in that vehicle. For more, we turn to Amy Wattis from our Pittsburgh station, KDKA, for the latest. Allegheny County District Attorney Stephen Zapala said his office objected to releasing East Pittsburgh Police Officer Michael Rossfeld on $250,000 unsecured bond. Now, as for that charge of criminal homicide, Zapala said he has evidence to show third-degree murder in this case. He said right now he will ask the jury to consider all degrees of homicide. He said he has a right to argue first-degree murder. In the criminal complaint, police say Rossfeld told them conflicting stories. In the first story, police say Rossfeld noticed Antoine Rose, who was the front passenger in the car, turn his hand towards him. Rossfeld said he thought he saw something dark, which he thought was a gun. Then he fired shots. In the second story, Rossfeld told detectives that he did not see a gun when Rose ran. Now, Zapala said Rossfeld did not see a weapon on him based on those interviews and witness accounts. Now, also charged today was 17-year-old Zay. Juan Hester. Police say he was involved in that shooting incident in North Braddock that took place prior to the incident in East Pittsburgh. He's facing multiple charges, including criminal attempted homicide. According to the criminal complaint, the Jitney driver told police that Hester, the passenger in the back of his car, was the one who fired shots at the victim standing on the street in North Braddock. Now, Rose, he was the front passenger in the seat. The driver was able to identify Hester out of several images shown by police and confirmed that Hester was the passenger in the back seat of the car. Now, to clarify those three shots that were fired, Rose was shot in the side of the face, his right elbow, and then that fatal shot to his back. His preliminary hearing is scheduled for next week. Police degrade. I don't know. You know, it's awful. You wonder why a nigga don't go completely mad. No, you do. You get your shit together. You work all week, right? And then you get dressed. You make, may say, can't make $125. We get $80 if he's lucky. <laughs> right? And he go out, get clean, be driving with his old lady, going out to a club, and police pull over. Get out of the car! That was a robbery! A nigga looks just like you! All right, put your hands up, take your pants down, spread your cheeks. <laughs> now, what nigga feel like having fun after that? <laughs> well, let's just go home, baby. You go home and beat your kids and shit. You're going to take that shit out on somebody. Now we're going to talk about a subject that has become one of this country's flashpoints, police shootings of unarmed black men. It happened again last Tuesday in Pittsburgh, where Antoine Rose Jr. was shot three times as he ran away from police during a traffic stop. A neighbor caught it all on camera. The video was widely shared and inspired three straight days of protests in Pittsburgh. But the negative effects of that shooting won't end whenever the demonstrations stop or the reporting ends. This, according to a study published in the Lancet Medical Journal. That study looks 
Specifically, it states that it had a police killing of an unarmed black man in the three months leading up to the survey. And it found that these violent encounters have a direct effect on the mental health of black Americans living in communities that have experienced police violence. The telephone survey asked respondents how many days their mental health was not good. Black respondents in states with recent police shootings were found to have significantly more of those not good days. Dr. Athendur Venkataramani is one of the study's authors. He's an assistant professor in medical ethics and health policy at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine. He joined me from member station WBUR in Boston, and I started our conversation by asking him why he and his fellow researchers wanted to look into the link between police killings and mental health. My co-authors and I were very uh, struck by the images of police killings of unarmed black Americans. And we had seen in some small local studies, as well as through our social networks and on social media, the kinds of things that um, black Americans who weren't directly part of the event, but had heard about it, read about it, or seen it through the videos that were released, the kinds of things they were saying about how they felt, what it made them feel, and what their mental state was after viewing or hearing about such an event. And for us, it it made us wonder, do events like this cross the line from just being upsetting to being something that make us sick? And, And that's what really motivated our study. The facts are that black Americans, as you point out in the study, are nearly three times more likely than white Americans to be killed by police. They are five times more likely than are white Americans to be killed unarmed. I just think that's important to point out because it's important to note that white Americans are also killed by the, the police, but it is far more likely than an African-American male particularly will be unarmed when that occurs. So part of the reason that I raise that is to ask whether you saw any similar effects of other groups, like did, for example, killings of white Americans stimulate a a similar effect? Do we have any comparison that we can draw upon? Absolutely. So we looked at the police killings of armed black Americans and the police killings of unarmed white Americans, which don't necessarily have that same kind of salience to people as far as their relationship to structural racism. And when we looked at the impacts of those kinds of events, we didn't find any impact on mental health nor did we find any impact on mental health of white Americans who were exposed to police killings of unarmed black Americans. And, and, you know, the survey focused on people in communities where these shootings occurred, but we live in a time when many of these deaths were caught on camera. They've been widely shared. Do you feel comfortable extrapolating that this effect may be broader than the people who actually lived in the places where these incidents occurred? Yeah, I, I think we do. And so, for example, Eric Garner's killing was seen by everybody in the country. And for the purposes of our statistical design, we considered people in New York State exposed. So one of the things we think is striking is that we find these large population-level effects even when we know that we are likely to be underestimating the true burden. The summary says that, you know, the interpretation is that, you know, police killings of unarmed black Americans have adverse effects on mental health among black American adults and the general population. And it suggests that programs should be implemented to decrease the frequency of police killings and to mitigate adverse mental health effects. What would that look like? I mean, what what do you hope people will do as a result of this study, which validates what frankly has been sort of widely discussed informally among many people for some time? We don't believe we're telling people in the black American community something that they don't know. I think what the study does is provides a public health rationale to further try to understand why police killings occur of unarmed black Americans. And it further motivates policies and programs that would try to reduce those events. And from the clinical side as a physician, 
these events really kind of show you that when something happens in a community, that there is a trauma that is a pathology, meaning it's it's a true illness, and that health systems, community health centers, public health organizations can try to rally around people to make sure that people are okay and that we're treating the burden of disease that's there. So I think that's why it's useful to put numbers around something that many people have noted anecdotally, because it sharpens the case for action, and it also lets us know the scope of the problem and potentially how we would need to address it. That's Dr. Athendra Venkataramani. He's one of the authors of a study published in The Lancet, which looked at the mental health effects of police shootings on black Americans. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. I also want to mention that the study was funded by the National Institutes of Health and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. The latter is also a supporter of NPR. Joining us now is NFL three-time Pro Bowler, longtime activist Michael Bennett, who's been part of a movement led by former 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick, protesting police shootings of unarmed black men. The on-field protests began in August of 2016, when Kaepernick refused to stand for the national anthem to protest racism and police brutality. The protests spread throughout the NFL. Earlier this year, The New Yorker magazine ran a cover illustration showing Martin Luther King Jr. taking a knee in between Michael Bennett and Colin Kaepernick. While Kaepernick has essentially been blacklisted from the NFL, Michael Bennett is still playing and speaking out. He was recently traded to the Super Bowl champions, Philadelphia Eagles, the same team President Trump recently disinvited from the White House. This all comes after the NFL owners recently ruled teams will be fined if players kneel during the national anthem to protest racism and police brutality, though they can stay in the locker room. Well, Michael Bennett joins us here in studio. He has a new book. It's called Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you for having me here. Twenty years ago this month, on June 7, 1998, James Byrd was brutally murdered by white supremacists in Jasper, Texas. Three white men chained the African-American man to the back of their truck by his ankles, dragged him for more than three miles along the road. By the time the men untied his body from the back of the truck, Byrd's head and right arm had been severed. You write about James things that make white people uncomfortable. And you talk about this seminal moment in your life 20 years ago, when you heard what happened, born in Louisiana, you grew up in Texas. Yeah. I think, for me, it was, it was the Emmett Till moment. It was the moment that, as a young kid, I came to the realization that, you know, sometimes being black was going to be an issue, you know. And so, for me, it was a very traumatic moment to think that, like, Am I safe in my being? Am I safe in this skin? Can I can I do normal things? Am I able to go grab a cappuccino and be seen as a customer and not as a you know as a robber? You know, as, when they see me, do they see me as a man first and not as and not as a you know as a criminal? And for me, that chapter in my book was 
was very important because I wanted to bring that into the light for other people who don't have to deal with those things, you know. You know, for a man, he doesn't, you know, understand what it's like for a woman to be walking at night, you know, to because automatically it comes to the realization like, oh, she shouldn't be walking at night. It's like, you can't do that. You can't victimize the victim, you know. It's a lot of times that, as an African-American person or a brown person, they've been victimized simply because of the color of their skin. And so for us, it's always hard to, like, to try to get people to understand it or listen. And in that, in that chapter, I just wanted to share, like, this is how I felt. Like, this is what it, when as a young child, you know, as a seven-year-old, nine-year-old, you shouldn't feel like that. The things that you should be thinking about is, how can I put this Lego together and create something? How can I play this Nintendo? Not about, is my, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be safe? Am I going to be, am I going to be killed? Am I going to be judged because of the way I've looked? And I think as a young kid, when you have that awakening, it's hard for you to really, you know, grow up in America and see kids, see the world as a child, you know, see the world as like, you know, Legos, colors, uh, you know, all these different things. It's hard to, you know, see that when you see something so young and your parents have to break it down to you. You know, I hate to have to take that wall down. It's like when you, the first time as a kid, when you hear that Santa Claus isn't real, it's like the world is like, oh, sh- it's shooken, you know. And when you find out that your skin is, is going to be a weapon gets, used against you, you get you get shooken. You get in a way that you just, you're getting hardened as a person because you know every time you step into a room, people are going to judge you. And I think that's the hardest thing to do for a young male. In an era where it seems as though black people have uh, incidents where people call the cops on them for all sorts of ridiculous reasons, uh, more stories are popping up showing black individuals who are doing their jobs in uniforms uh, facing criticism and threats of police being called on them. A recent example uh, features a black firefighter from the Oakland area. His name is Kevin Moore. He was doing routine inspections into people's backyards. Now, the fire department does this in order to follow California fire code. They want to make sure that uh, chimneys don't have any type of dry vegetation near them. They do this to make sure that there's nothing in the backyard that could lead to a fire. And apparently, while Kevin Moore was just doing his job, uh, a resident decided to call the cops on him because he looked suspicious. Now, mind you, he was wearing his firefighter's uniform. So let me give you the details. This is according to the San Francisco Chronicle. A black firefighter, again, his name's Kevin Moore, conducting city-mandated inspections around the homes in Oakland Hills was reported to police and, on a separate occasion, questioned and videotaped by a resident who found him suspicious even though he was in full uniform with his fire truck parked nearby. Uh, Now, the uh, fire department has responded to this, uh, saying it's extremely unfortunate. From the outside, it certainly appears to be unfair and unwarranted. The fire service is a microcosm of the world. Racism exists in the world, and it exists in Oakland and everywhere else. That's from the captain, uh, Damon Covington. Also, uh, Vince Crudell, who supervises the inspection program, said that firefighters absolutely have the right, listed plainly in the California Fire Code, to conduct exterior property inspections while residents aren't home. So typically what happens, and I've experienced this with the DWP, but uh, what typically happens is they'll knock on the door and let the individual know, the property owner know, hey, we got to do this inspection, we're going to go in the backyard. If the officials knock on the door, firefighters knock on the door, and no one answers, 
they're still supposed to go uh, to the backyard and do their jobs because it's an important job to do. Now, that's exactly what happened here, but unfortunately, he was met with uh, a call to the authorities. This, the way that he describes what happened when this person like confronted him, he's like uh, the person, this person who like you, you sir, you can't inspect her. He's like, he, he kind of startled me. He says, "Well, what are you doing here?" Uh, and then more response, "We're here doing our annual vegetation inspection." Then the guy who was suspicious of you know uh, fire department person more said he asked for ID. More shows him the ID. The dude takes a picture, looks at it, and says that Moore needs to get a different ID. And Moore responds, I've had that ID for years. It's kind of dark, and I'm more of a dark-skinned black guy, but you can still see me. But, like, so at that point, you're wondering, like, what does this guy have to do? What does the fire department, the firefighter have to do in order to convince you that he's an actual firefighter? He then goes on and says... Uh, it's more suggested that if he, the resident was still concerned, he could simply look out onto the street where a big red fire engine is right there. It's just like, if if not a firefighter, this is the most committed. And at that point, oh, God, no, he's, he's inspecting my bushes. Like, what do you, I mean. I'd say what these these thieves these days are really, uh, they're getting inventive. They, uh, they, they, still fire, they still fire trucks, mm-hmm. they still fire uniforms, they put them on, um, they park them in front of your house with, as loud as fire engines are, uh, they go to the back and they have identifications that coincide with their person and the fire department, yeah. all just to case your house. Just to case your house. That's a million dollar fire truck. That's such a more expensive Man. fire truck than anything you have These thieves are just too rich these days. So the man who questioned the firefighter said that the firefighter looked suspicious because he was wearing white tennis shoes. So that's all it takes. Black skin, white tennis shoes. Doesn't matter if there's a truck in the front yard parked in front of the the yard. Doesn't matter if uh, he's wearing a uniform or he gives you the ID that you asked for. He gave the ID. I mean, think about how annoying that is and how patient you have to be to comply with that right but he did he complied with it he didn't lose and by the way another thing didn't lose his temper was incredibly patient with this resident did everything right and like if anyone approached me as i was doing my job like i'm sitting at my desk i'm reading i'm researching and started asking me questions and started questioning my right to be there as i do my job i would lose my mind I would lose my mind within two seconds. It wouldn't even, it wouldn't, like, I wouldn't be patient at all, at all, not even for a second. I just don't understand what, what, this is in California, by the way, liberal California, this, like, hippie bastion. This is in the Bay Area. This guy's doing his job. I, I don't know what else to say. I don't know what else to say. How about that uh, Officer Kevin Moore was among a group of firefighters honored with the City Council Bravery and Heroism Award in 2008. He should get the Patient Award. He jumped into a ravine to save passengers trapped in an overturned vehicle. But did he? You know, First Ladies usually have a cause. And you've already said you're interested in speaking out against bullying on social media. I think it's very important because a lot of uh, children and teenagers are getting hurt and we need to teach them how to talk to each other, how to treat each other and uh, 
to, to be able to connect with each other on the right way. It's an ironic choice, since her own husband sent out a stream of pretty nasty tweets during the campaign. NBC3 News at 5. The East Syracuse fire chief is suddenly suspended without pay. The mayor of the village took quick action over a racial slur posted on Facebook from the chief account. Fire Chief James Brewster was elected to that position within the department back in April. The original post was about Congresswoman Maxine Waters. A comment posted from what appears to be Brewster's account used the N-word in referencing the congresswoman. Our Justin Page is live in East Syracuse tonight with details. Justin? Megan and Matt, we still haven't heard from Chief Brewster. That comment was deleted, but not by him. Late today, a new search for Brewster on Facebook himself didn't return any results. No answer at the suspended East Syracuse Fire Chief James Brewster's home Friday afternoon. We wanted to hear directly from him about the Facebook comment that led the mayor to launch an investigation. The East Syracuse Volunteer Fire Chief has been suspended without pay. Although his role with the department is voluntary, Brewster serves as the caretaker of the village's fire services, which is a paid position. Village Mayor Robert Tackman is investigating the chief after a Facebook profile appearing to be the chief's posted a comment about California Congresswoman Maxine Waters. Waters has been in the news recently for her outspoken opinions against the Trump administration. You get out and you create a crowd! She's long called for the president's impeachment and recently urged protests of Trump supporters in public. I did not call for harm for anybody. The president lied again. Brewster has been involved with the East Syracuse Fire Department for well over a decade and was just named chief in April. That was what was burning. That's what caused a lot of the uh, black smoke. He's worked a number of calls in his capacity as chief, including most recently a fire at Syracuse Haulers earlier this month. While years of dedication to the department earned him a leadership role, a comment he posted online could be what takes it away. Mayor Tackman clearly sounded upset when I spoke to him on the phone earlier about the whole situation. He said all they can say is they are investigating right now. No word on when that investigation may be completed or really what the scope of that investigation is. For now, reporting live in the village of East Syracuse, I'm Justin Page. Quick action by the mayor today. Thank you, Justin. in San Francisco called the police or, as she alleges, pretended to call the police on an eight-year-old girl who was selling water outside of her apartment in an effort to raise money for a Disneyland trip. Now, this story went uh, very viral over the weekend uh, with the hashtag Permit Patty because the woman who confronted the eight-year-old girl uh, accused her of not having the proper permits to sell this water. Now, uh, a video of the uh, incident went viral on Twitter, so I want to share that video with you, and then I'll fill in all the blanks. This woman don't want to let a little girl sell some water. She calling police on an eight-year-old little girl. You can hide all you want. The whole world going to see you, boo. Yeah, and um, illegally selling water without a permit? Yeah. On my property. It's not your property. Okay. Look. Like, the part where she hid was kind of funny. It's the best part like, in the world. When, she, when a grown woman who has taken time out of her workday to call the police on a little girl, call, like, raising money to go to Disneyland with just a think about fake it. 
Right, right, right. <gasps> but the best, like, if this was like 15 years ago, she would be on the phone and there would you'd hear like boop. She'd have to like. Imagine if her phone started ringing. Yeah. Oh, that'd be so good. Um, but no, like a grown okay. woman cowering. Literally. Cowering okay. behind a small, okay. like, that she knows is exposed. Can you imagine we're, we're debating something on the show, and then Anna. all of a sudden you feel embarrassed? You're like, Anna, you can't hide from me. Your story doesn't hold water. I'm calling the police. Okay, okay. So I heard that she hid, but I didn't see it until now, and it, it was fantastic. Uh. Okay, there's one more video, which we'll get to in just a second. Um, in that video, Permit Patty, whose real name is Allison Edel, explains that her life has been a living nightmare since that video has gone viral. Now, let me fill in the blanks. Apparently, an eight-year-old girl by the name of Jordan, again, wanted to raise money to go to Disneyland. Her mother had uh, recently lost her job. Times are tough. And so, as she's selling this water very close to AT&T Park... Uh, Edel argues that the little girl is being too loud and she's trying to get work done in her apartment. That's her argument. Um, and so when she approached and, and asked the little girl to stop selling the water, I guess, uh, she was met with an angry mother. At least that's her side of the story. Either way, it seems as though there is this pattern of people calling the cops on individuals who don't who aren't really posing any type of threat, right? So, look, with that said, let's go to Permit Patty on the Today Show explaining her case. I tried to be polite, but I was stern. And, and I said, please, I'm, I'm trying to work. You're screaming, you're yelling, and people have open windows. It's a hot day. Can you please keep it down? All kinds of threats. Horrible. Horrible images. And death threats. I feel bad for her. Yeah, I mean, look, she... Look, you know what the world is? The world is unfair. And what I mean by that is, when you're living in a big city and you're living in a building, things get loud. Like, I have neighbors that I can't stand. Like, I can't stand them. I have yelled at my neighbors. Really? Because I can't stand them. Yes, I've talked about this excessively on, on the postgame show. Good for you. Um, but I mostly dislike them because they're constantly bothering me, and I want them to stop. And so, but I also understand that living in a building means you're going to deal with noise that can sometimes be disruptive. You're going to deal with other humans being humans because you're living in a building. And so... We don't have video of how the interaction first started, but it didn't have to get to a point where you're going to call the cops on an eight-year-old girl who's selling water, right? But I also feel terrible for her because I don't want this to ruin her life. I don't want people to threaten her. I don't want her to be afraid. I don't want her to lose her job or lose business, which has happened. She's apparently um, an owner of a marijuana dispensary for pets. Wow! Hey, yo, drama. Hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. All right. I want you to Pondy replay drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> Let's give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. She's apparently um, an owner of a marijuana dispensary for pets. God bless her. That's the Lord's work. That's what's so shocking. Her job seems awesome. She gets pets high. <laughs> so it's called Treatwell Health, and uh, some of the... Uh, People that have done business with her have now pulled out because of this viral video. So, again, I don't want all these negative things to happen to her, but I do want people to just stop and think about their actions before they act. 
she, this woman was getting annoyed and it was a hot day. And like, I think we all could have like that really crappy response. Yeah. Like that's selfish that. of me because I know I've yelled at my neighbors when they, I know they were in the wrong, but I've yelled at them too much. And, and it's ruined my relationship with them. I want to give this woman a pass because like her job seems cool. She gets pets high. She yelled at a little girl. She pretended to call the police. Maybe she was having a tough time. Maybe when she was a kid, she really wanted to sell lemonade. But her mom was like, shut up. You need a permit for that. As an excuse and a lie to this poor, defenseless little girl. And she's taken it with her until this moment. I, uh... I'm a firm believer in earplugs. Earplugs are my favorite. They're good. I sleep with earplugs every night. I literally can't sleep without them. Um, just you live in San Francisco near a stadium. Just use some earplugs instead of threatening to call the cops on an eight-year-old girl. Now, the story does have a happy ending for the eight-year-old girl. Uh, since this story went viral, uh, people have donated Disneyland tickets uh, to her. And um, her response is very sweet. Let's take a look. Somebody seen the video on Twitter, right? And guess what? What? They know you want to go to Disneyland, and they bought you four tickets to go. (laughs) But because white Americans can keep themselves separate from black Americans, there is a sense that this other will never be who I am. So if there is a way to get people to understand, I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer that question. I don't know. You know, um, Robin Kelly says that we're going to need a surrealist moment. There's going to have to be something that breaks the continuum. Because until white women start giving birth to black babies, I think we are going to stay living in these incommensurable experiences. And a new exhibit called On Whiteness opens today at The Kitchen, the art gallery and performance space on West 19th Street in Manhattan near the High Line. It's the brainchild of poet Claudia Rankin, who won the 2014 National Book Award for Poetry for Citizen, an American Lyric, and was awarded a MacArthur so-called Genius Grant, which comes with $625,000 to fund her work. She's been using it to launch what she calls the Racial Imaginary Institute, which is creating art, seminars, conversations, and more, all of which are included, those kinds of formats, in the work at the kitchen. Claudia Rankin, who is also a poetry professor at Yale, joins me now, along with Monica Yoon, a member of the curatorial team for this, for the Racial Imaginary Institute, also the author of the much-acclaimed poetry book, Black Acre, and a creative writing professor at Princeton, as well as the rare combination of poet and lawyer. She is former senior counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice. And Lumi Tan, curator of the exhibit, from the kitchen. So, Claudia, welcome back. Monica and Lumi, welcome to WNYC. Good morning, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Claudia, can you start with the idea of the Racial Imaginary Institute that you founded? People don't usually hear those words combined like that, racial imaginary. Well, you know, uh, for a long time I've been thinking about this idea of um, racism as being tied to imagery. I don't know if you know that Frederick Douglass was the most 
photograph guy in the 19th century. Did not know that. And he did it because he understood that people's understanding of other people come from what they see. And so I was interested in bringing together thinkers and artists and all kinds of people to think about how we produce that stuff in the culture. And um, and that was sort of the beginning of, of the Racial Imaginary Institute, which we refer to as TRI, T-R-I-I. There's a common term that most listeners will be familiar with, white privilege. I read a quote of yours that you prefer the term internalized dominance. If that quote from a talk you gave at Emerson College is accurate, can you unpack for your listeners what you think the difference is and what it reveals kind of as a, you know, philosophical grounding for uh, entering the exhibit? That term is a term that I found when I was reading um, Robin D'Angelo, whose book White Fragility is coming out this month, in fact. And it it allows us to think about um, the, the, the positioning of whiteness as um, a race that comes with a certain kind of power, a certain kind of access, a certain um, ability and mobility to move around in the world. And, you know, when people don't understand the concept of why reverse racism is not a thing, they need to think about this this positionality of dominance. Like, you, if you consider yourself um, dominant, that means everybody else is below you. And I'll mention that Robin D'Angelo will be on the show next month for that book. Uh, July 18th is the day, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and one more question for you before we bring in our other guests. In that context, the page for the exhibit on the racialimaginary.org says the exhibition portion of On Whiteness aims to take advantage of art's powerful ability to reframe dominant ways of seeing, especially with regard to philosopher Sarah Ahmed's postulation of whiteness as a habit whose power to form and sustain specific social behaviors and institutions resides in its being taken entirely for granted. Now, there's a lot in there, and we could spend the whole segment just on that sentence, but would you expand on the idea of approaching whiteness as a habit as opposed to, say, just a skin tone? Well, I think when people talk about um, education as white, for example, it's because the habit of seeing white people, white bodies in certain spaces, have allowed them to associate Harvard and Yale as white, for example, or um, Wall Street as white, because the habit of seeing is creating the conception and, you know, it's not I, – I was really happy to hear that the Obamas are now going to um, start some kind of media production company because it is, you know, what we see determines what we believe often. And um, so this – Amen really talks about an orientation – towards whiteness that happens because certain bodies are repeated and repeated and repeated in certain positions. Every nigger is a star. Every nigger is a star. Who will deny that you and I and every nigger is a star. 
Obion County man claims he found a racist document inside his place of employment and he's now seeking legal help to get answers. WBBJ 7 Eyewitness News reporter Brittany Hardaway live now in studio with more on what it entails. Brittany. Brad Ariana, this four-page document that DeAndre Adams claims he found is filled with very disturbing language about African Americans. His attorney says the document is essentially a manual with instructions on how to configure, feed, and even dispose of African Americans. We want to warn you, some of the language you are about to hear could be disturbing. DeAndre Adams, a seven-year employee of the Obion County Highway Department, claims he found this jarring manual at work. I found a document that was titled the N-Words Owner's Manual. Within the manual, Adams' lawyer says there are subtitles such as, My N-Word Keeps Raping White Women, and Should I Store My Dead N-Word? It is just about some of the most disgusting stuff that I have ever seen. Adams' attorney, Kathy Lejour, says he spotted the four-page document inside a filing cabinet he checks on a regular basis. It looks fairly recently printed. Lejour says Adams was shaken when he saw the manual and the graphic details inside. It talks about, you know, installing your N-word, configuring your N-word. It, it's talking about literally like slave ownership. Adams' lawyer claims it also lists instructions on how to make African Americans work as well as ways to house and entertain, referring to black people as subhuman. Here I'm reading again, lynchings are best done with a rope over the branch of a tree and ends just love to be lynched. It makes them feel special. Adams reported this incident to his supervisor at the Obion County Highway Department. According to Lejour, Adams was told the issue would be taken care of. The superintendent just tossed it into the trash, which my client retrieved, and now I have the original document. This isn't the first time Adams claims he has encountered racism. Lejour says her client claims he has endured years of racist treatment. Being called the N-word, some of the people come into the highway department and say, oh yeah, there's that lazy N-word and things like that, which is is horrendous. Lejour says the Obion County attorney wants the original document for fingerprinting purposes, but says so far no action has been taken. Now, we attempted to reach out to the Obion County Highway Department's attorney this afternoon for comment, but have yet to receive a response. Lejure says their intent is to file a suit in federal court for racial discrimination and racial harassment in a hostile work environment. Live in the studio, Brittany Hardaway, WBBJ7 Eyewitness News. Georgia. Now to breaking news, it's out of Spalding County. Late this afternoon, a jury found Frank Gephardt guilty of killing 23-year-old Timothy Goggins back in 1983. This was a racially charged murder, a cold case that went unsolved until just recently. CBS 46's Ashley Thompson joins us live from Griffin. Ashley. And the Coggins family was incredibly emotional after that verdict was read. They say they can finally get some closure after almost 35 years. Now, Frank Gebhardt was found guilty on all five counts that he was charged with. Malice murder, felony murder, aggravated battery, aggravated assault, and concealing the death of another. He was sentenced to life in prison, plus another 30 years. Timothy Coggins' family, like I said, emotional immediately after that verdict was read. They could be seen crying in the stands. The DA's office and the Spalding County Sheriff came outside to speak with the media following the verdict. They said although many of the state's witnesses are not necessarily good people, as we've reported, many of them are in jail for other crimes, their sheriff said they were credible witnesses because they told the truth. Now listen to what the judge had to say to Gebhardt right after he was sentenced to life in prison, and then listen to what Timothy Coggins' niece told the courtroom. Count one is that you will serve life in prison. 
count two will merge into count one. On count three, you will serve 20 years in prison consecutive to count one. Count four will merge into counts two and one. And in count five, you will serve 10 years in prison consecutive to counts one and three. And hopefully, sir, you have stabbed your last victim. But we are completely grateful to be here today. It has been 34 years for us to be here, and we are finally here. And now we can go back to Tim's grave, as well as my grandmother's grave, and we can say, hey, you can, you guys can now rest in peace. So for that, Judge Sands, we are eternally grateful, eternally grateful. Yeah, some super emotional testimony right there from Coggins' niece. Now, Frank Gebhardt's family, as well as his defense team, declined to comment after the verdict. Live in Spalding County, Ashley Thompson, CBS 46 News. Ashley, thank you. Another man, Gebhardt's brother-in-law, William Moore, is also accused of killing Coggins. He will soon go on trial for that. Three other people are charged in the case as well. They're accused of trying to cover up the murder. All of them are charged with obstruction of justice. Two of them are former law enforcement officers. Context of white supremacy. Two of them are former law enforcement officers. Mm. But it's niggers who have a problem with not snitching. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, June 30th, 2018. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, uh, any commentary on the news segments that we just heard or anything else that happened over the last seven days. If you have counter racist suggestions that you would like to share, the number to dial 641-715-3640, the code 564-9. Four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Before we get to folks who dialed in via the phone line or the VOPE line, a few things. Number one, we are listener supported. Counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot. Dot com. When you hit the blog, look in the top right corner. You will see the PayPal button. If you are not into PayPal, drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, tremendous thanks to all of the cows listeners who have invested uh, nearly a decade. Uh, the cows listeners are the only reason we have remained on the air. Uh, I hope 
the program has contributed constructive, accurate information about what white supremacy racism is, how it works, uh, suggestions, things that we can do that will help solve this problem immediately. Uh, if you're also, if you're not in the PayPal, you can check uh, my Amazon wish list. Uh, it's linked on my blog. Uh, I posted it on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, but thanks again uh, to loyal listeners who have nabbed uh, many items over the pretty much last 10 years uh, for Gusty. Uh, it has been super helpful in keeping the program on. I'm super grateful uh, for all of the support. Now, before we can get to racism, white, or really, before we can get to the other content, got to get back to what has gone down at yoga. Now, uh, for this one, I uh, have a visual aid. I posted it earlier in the day so people can get an idea. Some of the poses are difficult to describe. Been a teacher training, which started about 10 days ago. You are required to take 60 classes to complete teacher training. That is a lot of classes. I do a lot of yoga, and I think that's a lot of classes. Uh, so just constantly, I mean, 200 hours encompasses a lot. So that's what you have to do. The teacher training is certified that you spent 200 hours studying uh, the practice of yoga. So I'm at class, and they come to the part of the class, suspected racist instructor, white male, come to the part of the class where he's going to do crow pose. He gives us the demonstration, and then we get to it. Uh, you can look on my Facebook page. You can look on my Twitter page. Uh, if you don't know what crow pose is, I suspect that there are probably some listeners who have uh, never heard of this particular pose, don't know what it looks like. You can look on my page uh, and get an idea. <clears throat> for the class that I have to teach uh, for teacher training, you are required to demonstrate this pose in front of the class and show people how to get into it. It's a kind of uh, it's a beginner level balance pose uh, where you're kind of balancing on your hands. Right. So in order to practice, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Teacher training in order to practice, to demonstrate like being in this wacky balance pose and talking while you're there, because I've never done that before. I have been timing myself to say, OK, I'm going to see if I can hold uh, my balance and crow pose for. 20 seconds, 25 seconds, something in there. I'll count and just, you know, that'll get me more proficient so that I can do it easily and then talk and, you know, ace my class when I have to teach it two months from now. So I go up and I'm in a corner of the room. I'm not, you know, out in the middle of class. I'm over by myself. I count silently in my head, hold for like 25 seconds, come down, go into child's pose, just a, a resting posture where your forehead's on the ground. So the white male instructor while everybody's like, okay, great, we're done with crow pose. We're going to go to child's pose. And he says, let go of anything that didn't happen. He said, if somebody did a really good job uh, at crow and they did it better than you, don't think about that at all. Now, my attention immediately peaks because I'm thinking, wow, that's a little unusual. I don't generally hear people say that in a yoga class. Like somebody always does something better than another student in class. I mean, we all have weaknesses, strengths. That's kind of irregular in my experience for an instructor uh, to say and to say it in that way specifically like they'll say things like you know don't uh, pay attention to what other people are doing or just focus on yourself that sort of thing but to say specifically if somebody did it really well you know don't don't pay attention to that or don't worry about that and then he said it's just a little blackbird let it go immediately I thought 
wow, what an act of racism. And I thought, yeah, he might have been talking about me holding this position, you know, for a while because some other people were struggling getting into it. And it was a beginner level class. So not everybody can do it the first time. I couldn't do it the first time either. I couldn't do it the first month either. Uh, but I immediately and when he said it, I thought, uh, I don't know if she's on the line now, but B in Canada, she had just talked about uh, word use and talked specifically about whites using the word white and finding comfort just in the use of the word white. And I think the same applies with the use of the word black because it's always associated uh, with something foul and bad and what have you. Uh, when you say crow, they don't say black crow. It's not Jim Crow, right? That's not the title of the pose, it's just crow pose. Uh, so for all of a sudden now, it's just a little uh, blackbird, or it's just a blackbird the way that he said. Very irregular. I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone refer to uh, crows being black in a yoga class before. It'll just be crow pose, or they'll say the name. Uh, in Sanskrit, which I believe is Pakasana, might be incorrect about that. That is uh, part of our teaching. Anyway, uh, just another incident. I immediately had labeled it uh, as racism and thought I would share. Uh, if I, if it was B, that was her theory about whites finding comfort just in the use of the word white. I think the use of the word black would also apply to her theory could be incorrect. But that was my incident of racism that happened at yoga just uh, two days ago, Thursday. Moving forward, other things that happened uh, or comment. <laughs> the pretty black girl that's in my yoga training class that I talked about before, someone had asked, did she see your shirt and did she have comments? The counter racist T-shirt, please treat me like I am a white person. She saw it yesterday at teacher training and she approved. Got two thumbs up. Grant. Still have to see if she's white identified or not. I don't know. Continuing. Uh. Speaking of the cows t-shirts, I think on Thursday, we will go ahead and do the broadcast where listeners can take the opportunity if you all, the people that have shirts, if you got one of the first shirts that was available, if you got one of the new shirts, uh, we will make time for listeners to share what their experience has been with the shirt. I am very eager uh, to hear. We might be able to get uh, Trav to participate and talk about the experience because I think he's one of the folks that would have both uh, shirts, the original, please respect me like I am a white person and the please treat me like I am a white person to see if there's any difference in treatment or just how folks uh, have responded, how whites and non-white people have responded to the shirt over the years. Uh, but I think it's going to be this coming Wednesday, excuse me, Tuesday, sorry, Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, all of the folks, uh, if you have a shirt, uh, there are international people who have the shirt as well. So if you want to write your commentary in and then we can read it on the air, great. Uh, some people already have uh, written me about their experience, uh, but we'll do that this Tuesday. And then if you have experiences beyond, feel free. Uh, we can share, but I'm very eager uh, to hear the new batch of experiences from folks with the t-shirt. That'll be Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Next, uh, the report, I guess there were two, I'll be specific. The report, the second report about whites adopting non-white children, the one, not the one that was talking about the decrease in international adoption, but the report that was focused specifically on the non-white male victim, uh, so-called Korean. He was adopted by whites here in Washington state. Wow. What a fascinating segment. So important. I think it's important just those types of reports to remember that 
many of the pathologies that black people suffer from are not exclusive to black people. These are pathologies that are symptomatic of being a victim of white supremacy. All non-white people have a lot of these exact same symptoms of being terrorized. But I thought specifically in that segment uh, where he talked about the confusion that he experienced and the treat the terrorism that he experienced from white children, the racist joke. Did they say the racist joke was two Wongs don't make a white that he heard from racist child and white people are ignorant about racism, but you got racist child coming up with one lot, two Wongs don't make a white. Hmm. With that, I'm going to have to come back to that segment when I get ready to talk about metaphors. So just we'll remember. Continuing, uh, the segment where they talked about the black mental health with regards to these police shootings. We talked about that before repeatedly. Dr. Marva Robinson, she talked about the work that she did in Ferguson. We had her on the program uh, repeatedly. And she talked about this, not a surprise to any of the listeners. What I thought was the most important point of that segment was they said that they saw no mental health impact on whites seeing black unarmed people be shot. Hugely important in my opinion, because wait a minute, if whites are not affected by seeing black people being terrorized and suffering, and this is not the first time I've heard that, but if that's the case, then, whoa, all of this talk about, you know, we need to appeal to whites and and better understanding and maybe if a white woman has a a black baby then maybe they will better understand whoa if the evidence says that no whites really do not care what happens to negros well then oh that's great we should take that data you just you're scientific in our problem solving approach we take that data fine let's readjust our counter racist approach keeping in mind that whites don't care seeing us be brutalized terrorized no impact on them at all. They don't lose any sleep over it. Not a metaphor. Mean that literally. Continuing. The Michael Bennett piece. Michael Bennett used to play for the Seahawks right here in the greater Seattle area. They had a lot of interesting reports in the local uh, newspapers about his because Michael Bennett was he had his own terroristic incident with police in Nevada recently uh, talking about that. He'd been talking about racism uh, open publicly for a long time while he was here in Seattle. Uh, but in that segment, I thought it was important that segment with my BFF, Amy Goodman. I thought it was important. His book is things that make white people uncomfortable. VGQ, he's a victim of white supremacy, victim guaranteed qualified. He said what he said. I just, I think it is interesting that my BFF, Amy Goodman, didn't seem uncomfortable. Mr. Bennett's book is co-authored by David Zirin, who's been a guest on this program. I don't think he could have been that uncomfortable if he co-authored the book. That's what I mean about just... The report just said white people are not made uncomfortable by seeing niggers shot down. And I don't think they're going to be uncomfortable hearing a black person talk about, you know, Mr. James Byrd Jr. Uh, the lynched 1998. We talked about that case repeatedly on the program. Whites are not going to be made uncomfortable about that. That's, you know, what I, just following logic. What does it mean to be white? Having a better understanding of that, I think, will help us to better gauge 
what makes them, quote unquote, uncomfortable. Again, he has VGQ. The segment where they were talking about the nigger manual that was found on the job, workplace racism, Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. They said a portion of the manual said how to configure your nigger. That reminded me immediately of Invisible Man. That is not sounding like you're talking about a person. That sounds like you're talking about a machine, uh, right? You configure your new computer, your your latest uh, technological gadget. You do not configure people unless I've been misinformed. I would love to read that manual. I need help. My nigger keeps raping white women. Cowbell. What does it what is the remedy for that? Unless it's lynching is the remedy for everything. But what is what is the remedy for that, as well as some of the other uh, problems that were listed in the manual? And again, I thought white people were ignorant about racism. Hmm. Uh, the last thing that I will get in for the time being. The segment or I guess this will be two things, the segment with. Claudia Rankin uh, I played that because I played I played the sound clip where she is the black female victim who's speaking where she says uh, she was asked how do we solve the problem of white supremacy racism and she says I don't know until we get the surreal moment where white women are having black babies I don't know what we're going to do to solve this problem that's Claudia Rankin she is a black female poet and I, she was just here in Seattle like days ago and it was sold out. Lots of maybe white women with babies in the house to hear her in the Pacific Northwest. But I played that because I've been playing that audio segment consistently just to see, you know, what it was going to be about. And so she's got this new exhibit in New York. Number one in that segment, they said that she won a MacArthur Genius Grant. That's not the way they said it. They said so-called Genius Grant. And I thought that was extremely important. I've heard other black people who have won MacArthur Genius Grants, um, Jennifer Eberhardt being one, I believe she's at Stanford University, and whites did the same thing. They would say that Miss Eberhardt or Dr. Eberhardt, excuse me, won the so-called Genius Grant. Uh, and I pay attention to see if they do that same phrasing when they're talking about a white recipient of that award. Do they leave the so-called off and just give that white person the title of genius? Or is that something that's reserved for the niggers? We don't, we can't call you a nigger right now because you won this award. This is where you're supposed to be a genius, but I mean, you know, we'll just say so-called and, and leave it at that. That's something I, I would encourage folks to pay attention to when you hear that. And when they're talking about black people who may have won an award uh, with the Claudia Rankin, I guess the only other thing I would say, she has VGQ as well uh, to say whatever she would like. Uh, just when when black people are talking about racism and their reference points for books that have helped their understanding of white supremacy, racism and those books, writings, materials are produced directly by whites frequently. That informs me to a great degree uh, about that non-white person and what their understanding is of white supremacy, racism, what their understanding or lack thereof understanding of what it means to be classified as white. Uh, and I guess the, the last thing I'll say on that piece for a moment, I believe the specific terminology that she used when she talked about uh, Robin D'Angelo and saying that she used the word, I believe, internalized dominate dominance was that she 
found that term. I thought that's very interesting. That is not you chose that term, that you thought about it, that you investigated, that you studied, that you researched and concluded that the most accurate term to you, that's not what she said. She said she found the term from suspected race soldier Robin D'Angelo. I just thought that was important phrasing of how she came to incorporate that specific terminology in her uh, vocabulary on racism. BGQ. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Words are very important. As such, on this particular broadcast, if we could not use metaphors, now I can go back to the segment on adoption with the victim here in Washington State. He said, I felt like I was white inside. That is a metaphor. Fascinating, but that is a metaphor. And there are lots of phrases like that regularly incorporated into how we discuss Think about white supremacy, racism, and in my view, that is a major component of why we have not solved this problem. Whites, they use metaphors, analogies, similes, comparisons on a regular basis. That is a part of their master deception. Uh, they will compare two entities and insist that they are identical when that is not the case at all. They do this on a regular basis. Non-white people, myself included, we are victims. We've been exposed to this behavior for a long time. And many of us, we are still learning. We have not come to conclusions on certain subjects, and that is fine. Uh, but sometimes we don't have logic. So we will substitute a metaphor of some sort. And frequently that just contributes to more confusion. If we could be direct, exact, specific about what it is that we want to say that would be grand i would super appreciate it i will prompt about metaphors and again we are supposed to be thinking even if we you know are really excited about a particular subject matter we still should be thinking about exactly what we're saying and making an effort to express ourselves using the best terms possible nobody's perfect not gusty but we are supposed to be making that effort that's it if you could take uh, about five minutes, whatever commentary you would like to share, that would be great. Make sure everybody has an opportunity to speak at least once. If you know you are in a noisy environment, if you could please use your mute button, uh, it just helps to preserve the quality of the broadcast. That way we don't have to fight over a lot of unnecessary disruptions. Much obliged. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary you would like to share line should be open feel free to proceed good evening Gus. greetings thomas in new york greetings sir um had a few um first thing man, what you just said about the the, the um, clip with the man who was asian and adopted um it reminded me of my former co-worker i mentioned her on the show several times, uh, her name was Karen, who admitted to killing a young black child due to her negligence. Um, they refused to pay family for years because she said they were probably drug addicts, even though she knew they weren't. 
Um, she had a little adopted a little Chinese child. Um, with her son, her, her husband was terminally ill, so they lied on the documents and uh, were able to adopt this little Chinese girl. And she would bring her to work often and would always tell her, "Now I just wish you could open your eyes all the way and see things my way." Um, I love the clip. NAACP niggas, alligators, apes, coons, and possums. Um, so we were animals waiting for the Mexicans. Um, um, you know, that's what I drew out of that. Um, last week, we got weed packages for the white dopeens in Canada. And this week, we got weed shops for pets. Um, white people could get less licenses and loans to open weed shops for pets. But um, people classified as black can't get a license at all in this um, legalized weed industry. Um, so, and I would suggest that person who um, is so, so, um, I don't want to use a metaphor, but it, it, it's, it's so crazy that they'll go get their, their pet um, marijuana. They probably engage in some sexual activity with their pets as well. Um, I never use white privilege. I think it's one of the largest uh, pieces of deception that people have come up with. Um, it comes right out of whiteness studies. Um, the concept has a date, an origin. It's not something that's old. Um, I heard the white lady say, white privilege is internalized dominance. Um, white supremacy is internalized and externalized dominance. Um, Internalized dominance, I never heard that term before, so I looked it up. It says, is the belief system grounded in miseducation and in the politics of social inequality. This belief system is the result of an advantage relationship to privilege, power, or cultural affirmation. Um, I don't agree. Um, totally wrong. Um, I have an article, a German man kills 21 of his co-workers. Um, over the course of 18 years, poisoning their food at work, um, going in the refrigerator, pouring powder on people's food. I um, mean, when they eat their lunch, they left it out on the counter. That's how they got caught. Um, after 18 years, putting white powder on someone's sandwich, and they noticed it, and they um, went to the camera, and he thought it was just a prank. But um, the guy tried to deny it anyway, even though they had him on camera, so they called the cops and um, they found out that um, 21 of the co-workers over the years died of symptoms related to this um, powder he was been putting on people's food. Um, just a reminder, workplace racism, we always talk about um, we get food around that work around white people. The white woman from the Young Turks Man, um, I really hate her. Um, she's like, if I was the firefighter, if it was me, you know, I would take this. And I mean, you're a white woman. You know, look at the position this um, man classified as black is in. You know, um, just I hate when white people do that. This week um, in Georgia, you played a clip. Uh, white supremacist Frank Gebhardt was sentenced to 20 plus years and convicted of murdering Thomas, um, Timothy Coggins, a, a man classified as black, 35 years ago. And um, the confused victim, victim, Mr. Coggins, was dating a white woman, which was what caused this um, event to happen. 
Mr. Gabbard said it 30 times and dragged him behind the pickup truck. Um, you mentioned Mr. Bird earlier. Um, and um, his body was found October 5th, 1983. I was six. So this man lived a full life. Yes, he lived a full life. And um, he goes to jail now at 60, sentenced to life plus 20 years. You know, I, I just need that. I need my mind thinking. Mm. Appreciate that, Thomas in New York. Absolutely. And again, for that much time, there are quite a few reports, like not one or two, but quite a few reports that the race soldiers in Georgia were bragging about this lynching for decades and nothing happens. Again, black people problem with snitch and they were enforcement officers, enforcement officers race soldiers. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Greetings, Red in Nevada. I'm heard. We, uh, Red in Nevada, we heard you. Um, Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I, I didn't say it again. I didn't know that's been somebody. Um, hello to everyone. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, this week, I decided to actually expand my commentary on the heroin epidemic, i.e., the opioid epidemic, um, and start going over like the other uh, 48 states since I've been mainly just talking about Nevada and Ohio. Uh, this week, um, I had uh, just decided for no reason to look up the issue um, that's going on in Missouri. And on emissourian.com, there's an article that came out um, today, 13 hours ago. It says opiate death rates at slower rate. Um, sorry, opiate death rise, uh, rising at slower rates in Missouri. Basically, the article is just talking about, again, um, naloxone, i.e. Narcan, how just been able to, they've been able to um, give it out to other, give it out to their first responders, and that's helped with decreasing the death rate also here by 30, um, 35%. And I know I'm, I think it was last week I discussed, I was talking about Ohio, and they had also decreased it within a year. Um, within 35%. So it's definitely becoming like a, a standard practice amongst races if they want to save themselves, at least save the adults. Not too much they don't care about guess, saving the children, you know, with all the gun laws and everything like that, but it was saving the adults. They, they're able to save them very quickly. And the thing that I thought was interesting was that um, I know like the CDC, they, were, they made commentary about the CDC releasing reports and how apparently Missouri is one of the one is amongst the highest in the nation for opioids uh, prescribed by physicians, talking about how they've incorporated, you know, the monitoring into the Medicaid system and just really trying to continuously um, share information that we are still having to pay to save white addicts' um, lives. Uh, the other thing within the article was that they had mentioned they've had the they've had Narcan at least within um, within their first responders at least with like police 
uh, for over 40 years, but they just started, decide, they just decided to start carrying it last year. And um, so I kind of, I, w- I was thinking about, you know, since they've had, you know, races, they will have certain things. They can, they have the antidote to certain things, especially black people are um, being affected by not so much heroin, but they decide to just use it whenever. And I, I did also um, look up from the naloxone. They're the manufacturer of Narcan. Um, from their website, one thing that I feel like um, might help some confused victims or people who might know of confused victims who are taking like codeine, might also be called syrup or lean. Narcan can actually help if they're overdosing, which is something that, of course, we're not told about. It's mainly focusing on how white people can be saved by Narcan. But if victims are um, through media, through rap, through whatever, are being kind of um, told to start taking codeine, maybe this is information that we should know of. Um, the other thing was uh, I actually did not know about the, uh, the, the author of The Little, Little House on the Prairie. I remember as a child having to read that, but I also went to a predominantly white school. Now, I remember the part about the, the Native Americans and, you know, of course, like other confused black people kind of siding with these, you know, the, the colonizers. I don't, I hope that's not name calling because they were considering themselves like, you know, um, people, you know, or whatever, but, um, kind of siding with them over, you know, especially how it was written in the book. And then in that same segment talking about, well, you know, this is something where it is kind of, you do kind of need to explain it to children, but seeming as if it, it was something that was completely important. Like, so I, I definitely, that was one of the t- takeaways that I had from that. Um, that pose is really, really, uh, that, that pose is, is, is crazy, the crow pose. So definitely um, congratulations to you, Gus, for being able to do that. And I'll, I'll meet my link. Thank you for allowing me to share. For sure. It is a beginner posture. I said that on the uh, all of the posts. It is, you know, not one of the cool poses that you can brag about. That's one of the early poses that you learn starting out uh, in yo. In fact, that class I have to teach in August, the reason that I was uh, practicing that pose, I have to demonstrate that for the class. So anybody, if you come to the class that I have to teach, you will learn how to do that pose. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have commentary you would like to share. Oh, uh, the was there another female caller who spoke up? Might have been Draftomania. Oh, hi, um, uh, guys and callers. I didn't um, say anything, but um, being that you said my name, I will uh, speak. Uh, congratulations on your um, progress with your class. And, yes, I do um, think that uh, that uh, instructor was practicing racism on you um, with his wording of uh, what he said by with the comment about the black bird comment. I'm like, it's just never ceased to amaze me how they, you know, have a tendency of slipping, you know, uh, easing that little racism in and so slickly. Um, and when you were saying that um, the, uh, about this study that showed that they have no, um, they are not affected about when they see us get murdered, um, that has, that does not surprise me in one bit. Um, I, as a matter of fact, I've been saying that all day long. I've been playing, saying that all day long throughout my head that they, these people do not care about us. Um, 
And what I did when I first started listening to your show, so, you know, as because when I started to become less confused as a result of listening to the cows, what I did to remind myself of who the enemy actually is. So, you know, I wouldn't be confused by the vampiric smells and the acts of strong kindness. Um, I um, printed out some pictures of uh, lynchings. And I had them on my wall uh, above my altar. And in the um, pictures of the lynchings, you see all the white people standing there just gazing upon the black bodies that's hanging from the trees. And, you know, you see the children um, and all of them just standing there. And in those pictures, I don't see any remorse. I don't see any, um, it doesn't appear to me that they care. Um, so, um, I have come to the conclusion that they are soulless, um, soulless individuals and they don't, they don't have a soul, they don't, they don't have the capacity to care. So, um, I was listening this morning, um, to a radio, I was listening to, um, the radio and, um, a couple of victims were talking about the, um, Roseanne Barr's situation about what she said with the whole racist thing that was going on, what she said. And one of the confused victims said how they felt sorry for her and um, that they really liked her. And I was like, you know, that's the problem. We are always siding. We're confused. And we really don't understand um, white supremacy. And that's why we tend to always... Um, side with these people even though they're they they will constantly show us that they do not have our best interests at mind. So um when I see them, you know, with the with the fake smiles and the fake, you know, acting as if they, you know, they're trying to help me, I I am uh, it it takes me back to what my mother always used to tell me. Um she used to always tell me, Lori, you don't have any friends. You know, stop saying that you have friends because you don't have any friends. And I think um, that we, as a as a people, you know, we we kind of need to take that same stance. They are not our friends, and the religious piece all just helps to reiterate that um, um, that whole um, forgiveness. You know, um, we should forgive them for whatever they do and. Whenever things happen, you know, whenever they do us wrong, we have to always forgive. That's it. And I think that religion, and especially Christianity, helps to um, uh, play a part in that whole um, ideology and thinking that we need to continuously forgive these people that don't care about us. And I'll mute my line. Much obliged. Uh, was there another female caller who was with us? I thought somebody spoke up when Red spoke. Maybe I'm hearing things. No, it wasn't here. It, it was me. Hold on, let me get this. Hello, it was caller for seven one two. Yes, ma'am. Hey, Oh, that, that pose that you put up on Facebook today, that looks so difficult. I know you said that it wasn't, but, man, that looks difficult. Um, and that was a beginning pose. So, yes, like everybody else said, congratulations to you for 
um, getting started with this, and you know you'll get it done. And I know I know that you will. And I just wanted to comment on the adoption with the um, not really adoption. I heard a gentleman on couch years ago say it was actually kidnapping, and he's correct. I believe it's what they're doing is kidnapping non-white children from around the world using the excuse as it was a war or it's a war-torn country, something that racist white supremacists caused anyway, and then they'll get there and go around the world and do adoptions of everybody's children and mistreat the children. Um, let's be honest, you mis- if you came and get me from the Philippines, you mistreated me right then. You could have just gave my parents the money and let them you know, raising me the best they could where we were, but it's just disgraceful. And then the part where I remember is where the race soldiers sunk basically one of her own back. These people will not go to uh, Kazakhstan or Bosnia or some country where European children, they're hungry too. They're walking around with empty pots and they need rice or whatever they eat in Europe and they won't go and get them. They, she sent the Russian child back. You know, he's a mess. I can't deal with him. But they'll go get the non-white children. And I, I'm going to look this up to confirm this, y'all. But I think when it comes to the, to the Native children, and I know it's racism and white supremacy, and they basically run that and they allow that to happen. But I don't think white people really can adopt uh, native, what they call native children, like Sioux or Cherokee, or I think it's some type of limitation they put on it. But yeah, very disgraceful, and that's all I wanted to comment on, and I'll meet my life. Much obliged. I did want to say really quick, the, the transracial abduction, I think that's the term I've used consistently, uh, abduction, kidnapping, all would be more accurate than uh, quote-unquote adoption. But in that piece, when they were talking about and they didn't specify why, that's the other thing they were saying, Americans. And I know it is not black people adopting children from China and the Philippines. I mean, come on. You do not have massive numbers of black people doing that here in this part of the world. Identify whites. Now, with that piece, they did not bring up. Oh, yeah, you did have all those reports, some substantiated of whites stealing children from Haiti with the earthquake in 2010. Like lots of illustrations uh, of whites not being humanitarians and, oh, we're just looking out for the best. And we just love babies. We just love children. Haven't you seen? We love children. No, we're terrorists. And we look for any and every opportunity to terrorize, especially non-white children. And how could we forget uh, the whites out in California Devante, is that his name? The the black child transracial adoption. They talked. It was so cute. He was all over the place with Michael Brown and then drove him off the cliff. We should remember that. From I'll make sure I get uh, the young black male's name before we go off the air. Other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if we've not heard from you at all, uh, proceed. Can be heard. Mr. Scotty Reed, founder of the Black Talk Radio Network. Good to hear from you, sir. Good to hear you, um, Gus, and right off the top, thank you for the years you've put in in providing this outlet. So thank you right off top. 
Um, quick question and then a comment. My question is, I was tuning in to Workplace Racism on Thursday, trying to catch the live broadcast. I don't know if it was something in um, a pre-recorded uh, interview with Dr. Welsing, um, and but then the program came on. So I don't know if that was part of the program because it didn't sound like the beginning of the program. It's like what she said. Did you play a clip yesterday from Dr. Welsing? Not yesterday, but from Thursday, or was that a pre-recorded broadcast? And the reason I'm asking is, she said something that was very important to me and very affirming to me. I even made a meme out of it. <laughs> and she she said that she said that slavery was the beginning of white supremacy. Was do, do you, was that something part of workplace racism or was that a pre recorded? I got to get a hold of that interview. Um, and I know you got a very large uh, archive of interviews with Dr. Welsing. Um, my quick comment, um, uh, there's a global system that's practicing slavery and white supremacy, and they prey on non-white people all over the world. I'm in full agreement with all those comments that I've heard towards that end. Also in Haiti, don't forget the Oxfam um, organization out of England, I think, were having sex with children, encouraging prostitution, taking advantage of the young Haitian women. That was uh, documented. So, you know, not only stealing children, but carrying out depraved acts, uh, sexual acts uh, against uh, non-white black children. And that happened in Haiti. Um, real quick comment, this so-called thing called immigration, got another affirmation from a clip I heard Mr. Neely Fuller talking about the six strategies that white supremacists are engaged in. And I'm actually uh, important that a uh, two-minute clip to Black Talk Radio Network's platform, but I had to write down, transcribe what he said. One of the things that white supremacists uh, are doing, okay, this comes from his six strategies that they are engaged in. Uh, this whole thing we call it immigration, Mr. Fuller calls racial dislocation. Here's a quote from him. That's one thing the white supremacists have to do, and they do it periodically, make people move in large numbers all over the world all the time. And, of course, as the previous caller, it's just that just causes so much from the transracial adoptions or kidnappings that y'all were just talking about to just all kind of mistreatment. And that's all I want to share. Peace and blessings to the people trying to attempting to practice justice. Thank you, Gus. Much obliged, Mr. Reed. Uh, to your question, Thursday's work, Thursday's workplace racism. This past Thursday, we had the segment about I believe it was Otisha Woolbright, black female. She was working at Walmart. And they had her lifting all the heavy boxes and such while she was pregnant, talking about uh, black maternal mortality rates, black infant mortality rates, and how uh, this particular black pregnant mother was being uh, mistreated on her job. I segued. Uh, it was uh, Dr. Welsing. She was a guest on the program. I think that was like her 21st visit out of 31. And Puff had asked a question uh, just about suggestions that she would give for 
raising children. I think I can uh, send you the exact uh, clip and, and date, Mr. Reed. But I, I was listening. I just wanted, uh, for full context, I really just wanted a sound clip of Dr. Welsing saying, when you play around with sex, the joke is on the offspring. That was really all I wanted, like three seconds, right? And she said it so many times, I thought it would be easy, right, out of 31 for me to find. But those are like three hours, sometimes four hour programs. So, I mean, it is a lot to find where she said it. So as I was listening, I found that although she didn't say when you play around with sex, the joke is on the offspring. What she did say, wow. Um, yeah, it was way more than what it was way more than five seconds, but I could not turn it down. The grandcester, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, always profound. Uh, much obliged, Mr. Reed. I will drop you that email. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if we have not heard from you, if you have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter. Greetings, everyone. Um, and Gus, great. Greetings to you also. Uh, the uh, first report uh, would be uh, <laughs> so, so bad. Uh, what's her name? Uh, Patty, uh, Permit Patty is what she's called anyway. I don't, I don't know her real name. Um, on how uh, white females would consistently use that tactic of uh, of uh, crying when all else fails, uh, and most times they are successful with that strategy. Uh, adoption or and or kidnapping. Um, Mr. Fuller states that white people who under the system of racist white supremacy who are having sex with non-white people are practicing racism. Uh, I would say similar with uh, white people who adopt non-white children. Why do I say that? I say that because uh, sexual interaction uh, produces children sometimes. It's and, and as a matter of fact, that's one of its that's one of the designs and or effects of sex is to produce children. And in turn, uh, as one of your earlier callers, female caller, was stating uh, quite accurately, is that for the most part, when it comes to the adoption of non-white children by white people. Uh, they have caused the problems in the first place, directly, meaning by killing non-white fathers in war or dropping bombs and killing non-white males, females, and children and survivors. A lot of times they would uh, take them up into adoption and further mistreat those children. Um, and uh, anyway, based on what I just said, maybe uh, some other callers can uh, kind of like uh, 
see whether or not that makes any sense or not. Last but not least, I can always count on you, Gus, to uh, to come up with uh, acts of racism by uh, my uh, former uh, co-workers, white, white uh, firefighters. <laughs> uh, the reason why I would like to report on that particular uh, case that you brought up is because I myself has been a victim quite a few times on emergency calls and white enforcement officials would ask me, what am I doing in this area or, or inside of the yellow tape or whatever, you know, you know, most times on quote unquote crime scenes, they have the area section off and uh, I'm standing in uniform, in uniform, uh, Dade County Fire Department on the on the front and back of a T-shirt, and yet still I'm asked, "What am I doing in this area?" Uh, that is uh, something that has happened quite a few times during my uh, years on the fire department. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. We just talked about that on workplace racism. wasn't a fire uh, fighter, but having to be on white people's property or in their residence around there. We just talked about that on the program. And then I heard that segment. I was like, see there, if you, if that's your line of work, like you would have to have a real specific code. Cause I mean, that can get violent real quick, like lethal violence, uh, super quick, uh, with whites, but just talking about that. And the fire department, they have reports on that every week. I don't even look or do any searches. Uh, those just come up all the time. White firefighters practicing, white terrorism uh other folks who we have missed completely if you have a hand up the number again 641-715-3640 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate uh folks we've missed completely should be with us Other folks who have a hand up that we missed completely, hanging out, being spectators. Yes, sir. Caller in Florida. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Greetings to you, Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. Um. There was a, uh, a couple of parts from the uh, audio segment. I had to write down some notes. Um, the first one was when they were talking about the, uh, the young black male teenager that was um, gunned down by the race soldier. I guess they were they were talking about what he was saying during the interview, or you know, what caused him to shoot the uh, black male. It said it was. It said something about he saw something dark, and based on that, I guess he became like fearful and he shot him uh, like that. That definitely stood out. Using that term, like dark or 
you know, darkness or something like that, bringing them into fear. On uh, the next one, it was, uh, there was, the, I know the term blacklisted was used in one segment. And what I noticed in the Young Turk segment was like when they were talking about the, I think it was a firefighter in uniform. Like I noticed like um, there was some sarcasm being injected into the dialogue, like trying to say, well, hey, these, these black people, these criminals, they're, they're getting creative. You know, they're, they're finding ways to steal fire trucks and, uh, you know, steal uniforms and, you know, doing inspections in people's backyard. You know, you got to watch them. Uh, I don't know if that was a, a white person or non-white person, but I have, like, noticed that those kind of comments can be made sometimes. Um, and it's definitely a form of, I guess I would say, anti-whiteness. And uh, the I think her name was Anna. She mentioned that, hey, you know, this is in, this is in liberal California. How can this happen over here? You know, whatever that's supposed to mean, it's like racism is everywhere pretty much. And then one last thing was um, where they were talking about the, the young child who was who had a police called on her for the water. And it, it sounded like that was a white person that used, the, um, I guess it was a pun about uh, can't hold your water or something like that. Uh, like like constant racism, I was noticing, uh, and that's pretty much all I have right now. And thanks for allowing me to share. Much obliged, caller in Florida. Uh, with that, the last segment, the Young Turks, where they were talking about uh, permit Patty, uh, where she called the enforcement officers on this, or uh, pretended like she was going to call the enforcement officers on uh, this black eight-year-old little girl uh, in that segment where they were talking about, or the, the white male specifically uh, was saying, you know, I want to give her a pass. You know, it was, it was a hot day and we've all had a response that wasn't perfect. And I think both of them, they agree like, oh man, I don't want to see her life destroyed. And oh man, I don't want to see her devastated. The immediate thought, again, uh, compassion for racists. We talk about this all the time. Uh, and, I am not familiar with any white person whose life has been destroyed, whatever that means, as a result of them being accused or found out of practicing racism. Like anybody, Donald Sterling, I can't think of anybody, uh, Paula Dean, no one who said their life destroyed for practicing racism. She didn't even go to jail. They didn't, unless I've been misinformed, they didn't uh, arrest her or do anything to her. I haven't seen people come in and burning her house down or anything of that nature. I've seen that sort of pattern uh, consistently where people act as, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. And yeah, she might have called him a nigger or yeah, she might have called the police on the little girl. She was probably going to be a crackhead anyway. But man, does she have to lose her business? I mean, she's getting dogs. High. She's getting dogs high. Anyway, other folks that we have missed completely, if you have a hand up, Line should be open. Proceed. Uh, 
do we nab everybody or uh, folks spectating? Might be some folks who are not able to speak presently. I have a quick question, if, if you have time, Gus. Let's let's hear your question. The the mother of the child that the police was called on didn't she look like a white woman too? Let me see a photograph. Let's see. Has, has, does anybody else that's listening? Did you all see the little girl's mom to see to verify? Or just to see whether or not she looked like she could be classified as white. She sounded like a quote unquote black female, but but uh I saw her and and I saw her because they interviewed her and I don't I, I the only thing I can say right now is I don't know for sure. <laughs> hmm. I'm pulling up uh, photographs, or I'm trying to get the look at the look of the child. The look of the child. The child almost looked like she could pass for a white person. Hmm. Interesting. Did anybody? Has anybody else seen? And I was. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Should be able to pull it up on your computer. Very popular story. I'm seeing. I'm, I'm getting. The computer right now. I'm getting all the images of uh, Permit Patty, the white woman in uh, the report, Allison Edel. I think that's how you say her name. I'm getting all the pictures of uh, her popping up first. I'm having to. It's white dominates always. I'm having to struggle to get some of the images of the. Okay, I see the little girl. She looks non-white. Still trying to see the mom. Still trying to see the mom. Anyone, no one with us has seen what the mom looks like? Reckon not. I see tons and tons more images than I'll ever need than uh, <laughs> of the white woman. Let's see. And I think this is the person who did the cell phone. Yeah, I'll have to take a few. Oh, okay, I think this is her. If this is the woman that you're talking about, might be her. Uh, she does not look like she has a lot of melanin. Uh, I would probably want to see her like she has a driver's license or something of that effect to to see what her classification is. I'm not sure. I'd probably want to see multiple pictures of her, too. But the one that I'm seeing now, I'm not sure. I'll post the one. <laughs> I'll post the one that I'm okay. that I'm looking at now. Uh, I would want to see like a birth certificate or something. I would definitely ask. <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, I still might have some questions after that, but definitely I would want to see like uh, a government uh, piece of paper that has racial classification on it and see what it says. It might be an even bigger story behind the story because of that. You know, it, it, it may be something personal between the two females. Hmm. They may not be strangers, in other words. That could be. That could be. I'm posting it on Facebook now so you all can see uh, both the eight-year-old, the victim. She, I don't have any confusion there. She's definitely not classified as white, but uh, so you can see the mom as well. And, you know, you can 
let us know what you think, uh, if you have thoughts or if you've seen any other interviews or what have you uh, of her to think whether or not she's classified or would be accepted as white by others. Maybe you can even ask. This was such a popular uh, story. You can ask uh, some whites throughout the week. Ask them. Do you think she's accepted as white? Do you think this is a white woman? Uh, any other uh, folks have either questions, comments, what we've uh, discussed thus far, if you have your own comments you want to share? Hey, Gus. Yes, ma'am. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, when is it that you had, what, what is your Facebook um, account uh, page? What is your Facebook page name? Uh, the one for me personally, it's facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people. That's okay. for me. And then the cows group is, uh, or one of them is facebook.com forward slash RWSWJ. Okay. And another question I had is, um, when do you have guests on to speak? It's just scheduled in advance, and I try to get it posted at least 24 hours in advance. Uh, this whole calendar year has just been disrupted, mostly because of the flood, but now the teacher training is taking up a massive amount of time, so it's kind of threw my scheduling off quite a bit, or not quite a bit, immensely. Uh, but generally, I just try to get it scheduled and then post it on Facebook, the Black Talk Radio Network, so that everybody's alerted at least 24 hours before guests are hanging out with us. Okay. And one other question, would you be able to give me the information for Roz? Um, I was listening to uh, one of the programs and he was talking about uh, crypto dollars and he had some information about that. And I would like to try to get in touch with him to um, find out some information regarding that. Uh, so if, do you have any contact info for him? If you email me at untiljustice at gmail.com. I can forward okay. you uh, his email address uh, until justice at okay. gmail.com and I can forward it to you. Okay, great. Thank you so much, guys. Yes, um. May I say something else really quick? Yes, ma'am. Let's hear it. Um, I forgot to mention, um, I'm, uh, I'm assuming maybe Ivy is not on the line. I did want to um, thank her for, you know, her analysis of my my nickname, Brad. Um, but the the other thing I wanted to mention was um, this week there was another instance of a white on white crime mass shooter um, in Annapolis and uh, Maryland, where this white man Gerard Ramos he he was mad and shot up a uh, it was a newspaper. Um, it's the Gazette, the Gazette, um, the Capital Gazette. I'm sorry. And I had watched uh, this CBS News um, video where they were talking about him, like the reporter, and there was also this FBI uh, profiler, former FBI profiler, and she used a term called an un, I'm sorry, an injustice collector, because she had said, well, you know, trying to explain away, of course, as to you know, why he might have done this. And I also saw other articles where the people were practicing racism, white supremacy, saying, well, they didn't have a motive, but, you know, he did have a vendetta. That was in the same sentence. It was really amazing. I tried to um, get to that article as well. But I didn't know what an injustice collector was. 
and apparently it's because um, I thought she was just trying to make up a reason for him to just to get around the fact that he is actually a criminal. But she didn't necessarily want to say criminal, but basically they take little um, instances of, um, and the article says fairness or unfairness against them. They they take that, they internalize it, and then they can then out. Then sometimes they outwardly show displays of violence. In that instance, he was mad about the newspaper publishing an article about him harassing um, harassing a woman. I suspect it is a woman. It could be a female. And then um, he uh, tried to sue them for a defamation lawsuit, lost, and then that, and then not long after, or I'm sorry, the defamation lawsuit was in 2012, still kept holding on to that quote-unquote vendetta, and then he shot up five white people. I can't remember if he injured some other people, but of course he has been taken alive. And um, I'll, I'll meet my line there. Thank you for allowing me to share that. I've never heard that term used before, injustice collector. Um, looking, I'm looking online now, and it seems quite a few, like media sites, that's how they referenced uh, the shooter in uh, Maryland, an injustice collector. Uh, now, I am seeing a few articles from a few years back where they used the term as well for uh, Elliot Roger. Folks remember him. He was the non-white male with a white parent who shot... I think it was like seven people in California, uh, 2014. I see they use the term with him, but uh, I, I see it frequently used in reference to the shooting in Maryland. That's, wow. That's certainly different from a terrorist. Uh, like when when there have been uh, Colin Ferguson, other black people that have been upset, Lavelle Mixon have been upset about racism, white supremacy. They have not been referenced as injustice collectors. Hmm. Uh, other folks, great job paying attention to words. Very important. Be mindful of word use. That is a major, really the primary method of, of white supremacy racism. Uh, other folks have uh, questions, comments they want to share. Do we not seem like there were folks who had hands up that we missed? But anywho, uh, everybody got their questions, comments. Did we miss anyone? While we're waiting, uh, the T-shirt experiment, I can at least report thus far for myself. Uh, I have not observed a difference. I was a little surprised uh, and I guess we'll have to see from people who've purchased the shirts and actually worn them I know uh, some people have got their shirts and have not had an opportunity to wear it yet or have not picked out a location I've heard some folks actually saying that they were looking for a specific place uh, to wear their shirt I certainly wouldn't encourage you to wear it to work uh, or anything like that but my experience thus far I have not noted a difference between how people responded to the shirt that said please respect me like I am a white person and the newer shirt that says, please treat me like I am a white person. I have not noted a difference at all. It's been pretty much the same. Uh, whites, if they say anything at all, oh, nice shirt. That's right on. Racism is a big problem, that sort of thing. Lots of black people have been uh, very constructive, uh, 
nothing nasty. I, I have not had anybody say anything. I didn't have people say nasty things uh, to me about the other one. I told you the, the very rare occasions uh, when I felt like someone was was directly hostile uh, with me, but those were very rare occasions. And, and thus far, it's seeming pretty much the same, but I'll be curious again. I think it should be Tuesday. Uh, we will make time, space, Tuesday, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific for folks who have the shirt. Even if you have the old one, I uh, would love to hear what your experience has been. Uh, what have white said that you've had the shirt on for? What have black people said? Uh, has it started conversations? Very eager. Let's do it on Tuesday. Some folks have already written in and I'll just I'll read their their commentary as we go. But that should be this coming Tuesday. Counter racist T-shirt experiment. I think some people have used this as a great opportunity to ask questions uh, because you will probably have at least one or two whites every time that you have the shirt on they will say something to you uh, about the shirt. So you'll have an opportunity, even if it's just, I like your shirt. Why do you like the shirt? What do you like about the shirt? Opportunity to ask whites a question. Uh, in the meantime, any other folks, uh, any other, do we have anybody here who has a, a shirt that they have actually worn? Anybody here who's actually uh, worn the shirt? Reckon not that that was people were were emailing uh, about the shirt and saying you know you don't sound enthusiastic like you're you know jumping up and down to go uh, sell these shirts and hear about it. Some of that was because uh, initially when I mean like 2012 when the first set of these shirts came out, it was not you know yes I want 20 of these shirts today right now I need to have you know one of these in my closet for every day of the week. That was not the response. It was. Who do you think is going to wear this? Where do you think I'm going to wear this? That was, you know, the response and people being unsure if it would even be safe, you know, uh, being truthful uh, to have that shirt on. I was not sure, even though my general thought was that it would be fine. It wouldn't cause any problems. If anything, whites would be cautious because they really enjoy practicing racism when the non-white person is totally confused. Uh, and this shirt suggests that you might, might be a little less confused. I generally thought that would be the response for, I guess, the six years that the shirt has been in existence. That seems to be the case, but uh, people still, including Gus T. I mean, I can certainly understand why you would be apprehensive about wearing it, purchasing it, all of the above. But Tuesday, hopefully we'll have folks uh, able and willing to share if they have the shirt, either version, and have worn it. Uh, did we miss other folks uh, with commentary? Folks still spectating? Reckon. While, while they're waiting, could I comment? Oh, yes, sir. Yes. Uh, the uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas killer uh, as I guess some of you can recall, some of the callers and yourself can recall, and the exception they mentioned about a possible relationship that he had with a uh, a, a head of a uh, quote-unquote racist organization. And then all of a sudden, it, it mysteriously dropped. Well, lately, uh, the press has been uh, leaking uh, information 
on, uh, I forgot his name, the killer, uh, been leaking information uh, of the students, of his fellow students, uh, stating of his uh, racist uh, thoughts and behaviors uh, that he has, that he had anyway. Uh, well, has, still has, he's still alive. Uh, and I thought that was interesting on how uh, being that the story now is kind of like uh, not uh, a top story any longer uh, that uh, except for, you know, locally, of course, uh, but uh, they, they, are st- they are now stating about his uh, racist understanding of things uh, just lately. That's all. If I, unless I I'm remembering it incorrectly. Nicholas Cruz, this is the suspected yeah, race soldier who did the, the shooting down in Florida. It's been so many of we the new one this weekend in Maryland uh, with Mr. Cruz. I believe the reports they initially said, we think there's some connection between this white shooter and this white supremacist group. And he trained with them. And then they came back a few days right. later and said, oh, no, no, no. Wait a minute. We messed up. We uh, we reported some inaccurate information. It seems like we we maybe got that wrong, and whoops, we got to do a better job. This this isn't the case now. That uh, this is just based on counter racist logic. I've heard Mr. Fuller talk about this regularly. Uh, that anytime uh, where its information is wrong and misreported, and specifically, I mean, this is about murders, and I mean, you got someone in custody, and you're talking about a big trial, and. All of that, like, no, let's get the information reported correctly uh, and not saying, oh, yeah, he had white supremacist because they were saying white supremacy. They weren't just, you know, using the milder terms that they often invoke and then to come back and say, oh, no, 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 we got that incorrect. He didn't have any white supremacist leanings at all. And then you had some white saying, see there, you just try and attribute everything to white supremacy. And that's not even the case and, and that sort of thing. So I don't have you seen where they have gone back to to say that, yes, he is a racist, or are they saying that, yes, we reported that incorrectly and there's no evidence that he's a white supremacist at all? Well, uh, basically, I think what the article, what, what the news was reporting is that what they, you know, because the police and everybody else from the seconds after the, the, the school was secured, uh, they, you know, were taking interviews with students and uh that sort of thing and and they're now revealing this this information uh you know very slowly uh and basically uh, a lot of his fellow students were saying you know like uh you know it's like known news that he always was talking was talking uh, about racism all of the time that was just you know one of the things that that his uh fellow students associated him with you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like no news between the students, you know. So, I mean, and it, it's literally something that could have came out right at the exception of knowing that his name was Nicholas Cruz, if that was the case. Because no, it, it seems like no one, no one at that school, uh, I would say students, as well as, uh, of course, one of the uh, two of the security guards got fired just recently because they knew who he was when he showed up on campus on that day. <laughs> they knew who he was. And also, it was a uh, 
it was a, a, a known uh, thought that if anybody would come to our high school and shoot it up, it would have to be Nicholas Cruz. So, I mean, that, that was like known news. You know, same thing with this. Same thing with the guy who uh, just recently uh, killed five people in uh, in the uh, the news uh, office. Uh, the same thing. They 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 knew who he was. It's, it's, I mean, uh, my my uh, sibling, uh, she's a uh, enforcement official, and uh, she was talking to me about that just recently. You know that I mean. The people, the people knew who who these people, the, these two killers were. It's two different cases, but I'm just stating they they knew they they knew that if anybody was going to shoot up their office or if anybody was going to shoot up their school, it was going to be Nicholas Cruz or this guy who did that just a couple of days ago. And in the, the subject matter that I brought up with the student, the the ex student they knew about his racial history also. The students did. Gerard Ramos, uh, his, uh, or the lawyer who worked with him said he's the most dangerous person I've ever dealt with. Uh, All of this just reminds me of Wisdom of Psychopaths. We did read that Kevin Dutton uh, back the earlier part of the year all of this reminds me he was talking about these sort of fellows right here uh and not and finding different and creative imaginative ways to not label them as terrorists now they i guess he might be what is it an an injustice collector as well i don't know if they use the term with mr ramos or maybe he was an, an injustice collector maybe the the capital gazette had printed some uh some incorrect stories uh in their paper uh, or he had had somehow injured him in some way and so he was collecting injustices with his shooting this week maybe that's what happened anywho uh the other folks who dialed in have uh commentary 641-715-3640 the code 564-943 pound press star 61 if you have uh commentary certainly do not wait till the last minute if you're with us and have commentary you want to share it any other folks have questions comments May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello. Um, I was looking for the article, and I did find it um, about Gerard Ramos. I'm the one I was talking about. And I found it, it interesting. I don't know when the Washington Post is a Washington Post article, but I don't know when they changed their banner. But I always feel like it's, it, if it's a white person who's in charge of the banner, I feel like this could be an act of racism, white supremacy, because it says right underneath, it says the Washington Post, and it says democracy dies in darkness. And I just thought that that was funny, um, especially with, or not maybe not funny, but, you know, an act of racism, especially if white people also talk about the quote-unquote browning of America. Um, but anyways, the article, the title is Five Dead in Capital Gazette Shooting Suspect Gerard Ramos is in custody, police say. But this one, it was like an earlier one. There's an updated story. But um, just to add on to what I was saying earlier, um, it says that there's a couple of just, um, I'll just read just two sentences out of the, the article. It says, the gunman's motive remains unclear, but police say the newsroom had recently received threats of violence through social media. Just right there, it's like 
you're reporting that it was unclear, but then in the same breath and in the, after the comma, after the but, you're saying what the motive was. And then the other thing within the article was that um, once again, it's um, this, it, they, they, they quote these people as being lone shooters. He said it appears, it appeared um, to be the act of a lone shooter, said Ann Arundel County Executive Steve from some, somebody. Then um, it says it doesn't appear to be a particularly well-planned operation. So it's almost like they're already coining him as, you know, somebody that was unstable and someone who, you know, maybe just didn't really realize what he was doing. Um, just all acts of racism, white supremacy. And I'll mute my line. Thank you. Yep, absolutely. They are phenomenal. Racist man, racist woman. They are phenomenal uh, at particularly when it's some sort of criminal behavior uh, at shifting it from whites deliberately carrying out these terrorist acts. It's got to be something else. And we don't know if they can be super vague, super vague at that point. Totally different uh, way of describing incidents when it is a black perpetrator, even if it's an eight-year-old without a permit selling water. Uh, Other folks uh, have any comments, questions they want to make sure they get in? This weekend is uh, July 4th. I had forgotten all about that, uh, that we have a major holiday uh, coming up. I generally do try to give out my warnings uh, with the holidays because they generally are accompanied with tremendous spike in alcohol consumption. Sobriety would be best. I know folks might be thinking, hey, we can go get the pet some cannabis this weekend. Great uh, idea from the news clips. Sobriety would be best, especially around these holidays. They'll probably have more of those sobriety checkpoints out from local enforcement officials, uh, particularly in areas with a lot of non-white people. And you'll just have more people, period, out driving who are intoxicated, being reckless as they go to and fro uh, on America's high or on the highways. Uh, I would keep all of that. Just be mindful of all of that to be codified if you are going to go out, do anything, visit, just try and enjoy the nice weather. Just be codified. Uh, Racists, they do not pause uh, because it is a so-called holiday. Uh, Again, I would really encourage we shouldn't be participating in holidays at all. We should be very mindful about the way that we're using our time and energy. If you don't have to be on the plantation uh, that day, great. Find something constructive to do with your time and energy. If you do, certainly I would not eat. I've been on jobs before. They bring in food for the fourth and, and all that madness, I would not participate. I would just go about my business and try to get somewhere uh, safe uh, before nightfall. I know around these parts, they do a lot of shooting and whew, white terrorism. Be safe uh, if, you know, all of that is, is going to be going down in your area over the next uh, few days. I was even hearing whites say because the fourth is going to be on a Wednesday. And I guess if you're going to, you know, get inebriated, that that might mess things up if you got to go back to work on Thursday that they were going to take off the entire week so that they could go out and do their thing for July 4th. Sobriety would be best. Uh, other folks uh, have uh, retired firefighter? Yes, I, I was going to uh, give a uh, possible helpful warning. 
I first was going to uh, share with uh, everybody at a, a, a uh, experience uh, going on a call. Well, actually, we weren't going on a call, but we were uh, going to help supervise a fireworks display. Of course, they're going to call the fire department to sit around while displays were uh, going off professionals. Uh, anyway, uh, it was at a stadium, at a stadium. And uh, before we can get to the location, uh, a uh, young black male brought his sister uh, up to us and stated that you know, I don't, I don't know how, but my sister was complaining uh, on her arm and uh, that her arm hurts. And uh, so I took a look at it. It was a little red dot on her bicep. I don't, I can't remember. It was so long. It was like I don't know if it was left or right bicep. Uh, and it was on, it was on July the fourth. Uh, and come to find out what that little red dot was, it was a gunshot wound. Uh, that she got from people shooting their firearms up in the air. Uh, and as we all know, gravity, uh, we're on the planet Earth, and gravity is a factor, and what goes up will come down. Uh, unfortunately, especially in, for some reason, in areas where non-white people stay, uh, we do a lot of shooting uh, between, uh, what is it, uh, January the 1st and July the 4th, for some reason that I uh, don't fully understand. Uh, so uh, it'd be a good idea to uh, not be out at all uh, during that time uh, because one of your neighbors uh, may be discharging a firearm up in the air. And uh, in turn, as I mentioned before, those. Uh, piece of lead are going to come down somewhere. And uh, that's my uh, safety uh, warning. Thank you. Battle simulation. That's the way one of our listeners referenced it previously, July 4th. Battle simulation. Uh, race soldiers know you're required on a planet where the vast majority of people are going to be victims of white supremacy. Going to have lots of battles, lots of killings, Gotta have fun and rejoice at the thought of battle and killing non-white people. That's exact interpretation of the fourth and just another reason to not celebrate, do something constructive with your time and to be safe uh, with that. So that's what I've seen. I just said that the shooting, that's what they do out here. The shooting, the fireworks, all of it. Uh, stay in the house, stay safe uh, and do something constructive with your time and energy. Uh, other folks, uh, any other commentary they want to make sure they get in? We don't even have warm weather out here. Like it might be 70 degrees for July 4th and they still act a fool. So hmm. <laughs> other folks have commentary. Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Um, an injustice collector someone who sees injustices in many, if not most things that happen to them in life. Injustice collectors can misperceive the smallest slights and turn them into major events, and they can accumulate these injustices for years. 
people who engage in injustice collecting are preoccupied with the guilty party and the unfairness that's bestowed upon them. They spend time ruminating about the person essentially maintaining an unrepresented dynamic and that they are thinking about the person more than the person is thinking about them. Um, that's the definition of that. Wow. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. I will have to think on that. That new term, that's why I said this broadcast, we should be very mindful of terms. Uh, new term, I will have to think of an injustice collector. Uh, and then I have to pay attention to how that's how that term is being used, which type of people are described as being injustice collectors. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, other folks uh, have any commentary they wanted to get in last few minutes of the broadcast. Everybody, satisfied? Abby Hurt. Oh yes, ma'am. Red Nevada. Oh yes, thank you. Um, when I first heard the term, and I was reading it off of that um, CBS News article, I was thinking that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if this is like a way, you know, how suspected white supremacists, they can use one term in a positive way, especially for, you know, to protect white people and then use it in a negative way to, um, towards black people or maybe even non-white people. So I was thinking, especially when um, Thomas had read the definition that I wouldn't be surprised if people who are trying to counter black people who are trying to counter racism, if they might be, um, if they might be uh, called that term, it's because it seems like it could also fit, you know, counter racist if we feel, but it, except in the mind of a white person, because in the article that I read, it said real or imaginary. Now with suspected white supremacists, we always are imagining or victims of white supremacy are always imagining that we do have these real injustices occurring. You can have, you know, studies to t you can have, you know, studies, um, people telling their stories, everything, and it still doesn't matter. So I was just um, actually thinking about it like that. And like you said, it'd be really interesting how they would use the term. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, is are we going to be uh, like in a year or two when they write the, the textbooks? Is, is Dylan Stormroof going to be described as an injustice collector? I mean, I, again, I'll have to think about it and pay attention because this is my first time with the term. So this will be one that I'll be mindful of uh, in the future. But whites are extraordinarily cunning crafty with their use of terms especially when it comes to any racial matters but man injustice collector be mindful if anybody sees any interesting reports you can feel free you can uh, email or uh, tweet facebook whatever it is uh, just share and uh, i will read and make note uh, any other commentary folks wanted to get in Out of the, yes, sir. Caller in Florida. Uh, uh, a couple of quick things, Gus. Um, speaking of terms, I was, I think, I'm trying to remember, it was an interview, I think, with a wrestler. Um, mm -hmm. The It was a, a white host, and he asked the question, I think the guy name is Mark Henry. Mm -hmm. 
and they were talking about uh, the Rock, Dwayne Johnson, and the white the white guy said that he was diet black. He like said he say it again. Diet black. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said like, well, he, he's he's not really he's not really black. He's diet black. And he asked him like, had he ever heard of that? And Mark Henry, he's more melanated. He was like, no, nah, I never heard of that. So I think that's the like, that was the term the, the white dude came up with. So I don't know if anybody had heard of that term. Have you ever heard of that? Never. First time. Got me again. Diet Black uh, Injustice Collector. I keep adding them. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and um, the, the next one, it was a it was a, uh, a story like over in uh, Baylor University. There's a, a white guy named Ian McCaw. He used to be an athletic director at the University of Baylor, and I guess he's apparently uh, engaged in a lawsuit to the university about them skateboarding black uh, black football players, I guess, like charging them with rape allegations. Um, I think it was at least like 31 players, and they said it was an effort to, I guess, uh, take the focus away from a, a culture of um, like rape and sexual misconduct on the campus like decades long to just center it on these black players. Uh, so I guess, you know, with him as a white person, maybe he's able to get something he's done. But that that's a uh, like a breaking um, story from this week. And the end off like I had a I have a major um, update with the workplace racism that I was going to share, but that I'm going to share on the next one was that I uh, I called out the the white woman warden <laughs> in an email. Um, so yeah, I really I really went in for it. Uh, when when I went in for it, I really um, put some black self respect out there. So you know, I look forward to sharing it. Outstanding. Always eagerly await uh, examples of black self uh, black self respect, especially in the workplace. We do seem like we have a, a healthy number of cows listeners who use the workplace as an opportunity to demonstrate black self respect. That is phenomenal. Uh, we will Thursday, eight p.m. Eastern, five p.m. Pacific. We will be looking forward to the update. The warden being called out. Sorry, black. Um, I remember being uh, a child, well, you know, maybe a teenager. Uh, once you were old enough um, to play in the street, um, the cars come down, you know, um, you would play street football. Um, and um, it was a big deal, you know, in Jersey. And, um, you know, when cars would come, you just call motion and stop, you know, right where you were. And, you know, the play would pick up when the car went past um, certain rules you had to you know, either way, uh, there was one albino kid um, that grew up on the block in the neighborhood with us. And uh, one day after the cops passed us, you know, you know, motion, we all stopped, the car went past. The guy on the loudspeaker and said, um, case of Pepsi in one spark. And um, kept going. Hmm. Context of white supremacy. 
uh, a game. And it's the same type of thing uh, where whites know these associations. You can't be ignorant and make these type of uh, comments. You can't be ignorant about racism, uh, whether it's the diet, <clears throat> the diet black thing. Uh, and in my view, that's just a racist joke. Uh, people generally, if we were talking about like a diet beverage, we want to stay with that metaphor, metaphors. Uh, if we want to stay with that, like, oh, you don't want too much of uh, the niggerishness, get the diet one. That way you can, you know, not have too much. Don't want to go overboard with that blackness. Uh, the same type of idea with with the sodas. Uh, can't be ignorant about racism making these types of state. Even the children, as I said, that stood out to me. Get a racist joke from the children. Two Wongs don't make a white. That is not ignorance about racism. Other, oh, uh, I'll get it in quickly. I'll be I'll be brief. Reading is more important than watching television. I have not watched Black Panther. Have no intention of watching Black Panther. I mean, I thought before maybe if somebody said we'll compensate you, like we'll give you a thousand dollars to watch uh, Marvel's Black Panther, maybe I would watch it. Uh, but I did watch Rampage, uh, and the reason that I thought of it. Diet Black, Dwayne Johnson stars in Rampage. I, I had been wanting to see it for weeks because I thought, wow, this is what replaces Black Panther as number one at the box office, an albino gorilla. And that's what Rampage is about, this albino uh, gorilla, mutant albino. It's like a, a double mutant. Uh, it's an albino. That would be one. And then they uh, use the CRISPR technology to further mutate him. And he goes on a rampage and is killing all these people and what have you. And they're going to blame it on black people. Uh, you don't need to watch Black Panther. You can pick anything to pick out racism, white supremacy. But I did think that that was extraordinarily symbolic that Marvel's Black Panther replaced at number one at the box office by albino mutant ape rampage horrible movie you do not need to watch it but the racism is there it's in every film i told someone this week like you don't need to uh watch every film and do a review you could you know just watch things randomly uh the racism is going to be there you can count on it uh but reading is more important than watching television again the grandsister dr welsing other folks anybody else have commentary they wanted to make sure they get in um, when I saw the trailer for that movie, uh, I didn't watch the movie. Um, I first thought of um, the Rhesus Monkey, um, the R.H. Factor, that um, it appears to be a most um, people from European descent. And um, it traces back to a Rhesus Monkey that's in India, uh, which is an albino monkey that has raped all the other monkeys in India to extinction because they carry the herpes disease and um they other uh, monkeys when they transmitted to them they, they killed them off so they're the only monkey left um sounds pretty familiar um i saw a trailer for that book we read um i was appalled that they really made that into a movie the hate you I give that's what you're talking about it. yeah i was like oh man look at this and i saw a trailer for the um purge the first purge, now we discussed the purge as being, um, you know, a major movie where the people who are hunted down always tend to be um, melanated people. And um, it appeared in the first purge, all the people being hunted down, melanated people, 
And um, I say, yeah, this is definitely, I think, going to be when I'm telling the whole story. Um, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to uh, watch that. However, um, I think those are great. That's a great series of movies uh, for kind of racist uh, experiment. I'll be with my line. I didn't see Sam either. Hurt? Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. Oh, you're good. I was just going to say, I didn't, I didn't see either of the, the trailers, so I, you know, I can't comment on, uh, I, well, I saw the movie for the Rampage, but I didn't see the trailer for The Purge, so I don't, can't comment on that one, but Rampage is horrible, don't need to watch it, filled with racism, albino, mutant, gorilla. Snowflake, talked about him, uh, Red Nevada. Um, I, uh, I forgot, um, the two comments that I had about two clips, I definitely, I'm, I'm definitely very interested in about the whole manual and I couldn't hear like the full name of it. I thought it was something nigger manual or nigger something manual, but then the whole configuration was really, that was, I feel like that was really, really odd. Um, and maybe it, it made me think about Dr. Weldon cause I was listening to some of the older, um, interviews and how, you know, she was, she would always talk about, you know, how, what white people would talk about when there are no black people around and maybe just kind of, it, I don't know, just being really, really, really odd. But, um, I didn't know, uh, what the last, I think that was the last segment. It was, um, about the, the, uh, white terrorist who had stabbed someone over 30 times. Um, what was, his name, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever recalled hearing about that story. Um, and I'll meet my line. Thank you. Uh, that case was in Georgia and it was from 1983. Uh, give me a second. Uh, Timothy Coggin, that, the victim, the black male, that's the most important name. Uh, he was the victim who was uh, accused of being too friendly with a white woman. And that was grounds to murder him uh the white male that was convicted let's see if i get a second i can pull it up uh the white male who was just convicted and then i think they convicted or have charged some of his other relatives and white terrorist cousins as well timothy coggins yes that's uh the name of the victim and the killer that was just convicted something with an f i'll get it in a second yeah i hadn't heard of this case either uh from 1980 i just started hearing about it within the last six months or so uh but i had never heard about this case didn't you know people did not mention this as oh my gosh this is one of the franklin gebhardt that's his name franklin uh gebhardt and he was just uh convicted that's the name of the race soldier. All right. Thank you. I was able to um, look him up. I didn't know that this was, uh, I guess, you know, following those common practices. I didn't know that he was also dragged behind theft and then dragged behind a pickup truck. That's what one article, it says crime cider. I'm sorry. It says, um, not that that's a banner, a banner, cbsnews.com um, article from June 28th says, um, thank you, though. I'll meet my line. For sure. Important, the, the same thing with uh, Jasper, with uh, James Byrd Jr. 
Michael Bennett mentioned him in the Democracy Now! interview that we played today. Uh, they didn't just, they dragged him, right? Decapitated him and all. And then they took his, his remains and dumped them in the Black Cemetery in Jasper and urinated on his remains. Same, uh, the same, you just end up seeing the same patterns uh, in terms of how race soldiers function and then the, the use of the genitals uh, to further desecrate an already murdered individual but that's the james bird jr situation and then uh the different with what happened in in georgia here remember we had dick gregory the late dick gregory on the program he was protesting one of the killers of james bird jr he did not want him to receive the the death penalty that was in 2011 the second time we had dick gregory on the program we talked about the the james bird uh jr case there's a great documentary two towns of jasper anybody that's not familiar with James Byrd Jr. and and what happened in Jasper, Texas, uh, Two Towns of Jasper. It is phenomenal. Uh, I've played some sound clips on the program before over the years. I would highly uh, recommend it. It is definitely worth your your viewing time, much more so than Rampage. Uh, any additional comments folks need to get in before we conclude? Um, thinking about this um, Injustice Collector, and I can see... Um, in the case of Mr. Coggins, um, Mr. Timothy, um, who was um, seeing a white woman allegedly, um, how white men who may have um, tried to speak to that white female and been turned down um, may have sat back and fantasized about all this stuff he's doing with this woman that should have been theirs. You know, I, I can see how this plays a lot into some of the things that we... Um, hear about, um, especially um, when they assumed, um, what he said, Mike Brown was Hulk Hogan, uh, I believe, or was that um, um, Tamir Rice? I mean, they, they automatically have this this assumption and presumption uh, about what we are. You know, made, made Tamir Rice a 30-year-old, not a 12-year-old in his mind. You know, and, and, and I think a lot of what they... The, the way they think, they, they're constantly thinking about us. I think that's one thing Dr. Weldon uh, kept stressing and every time she visited the show, that white people are obsessed with thinking about black people. They think about us all the time. And, and um, in their mindset, I think some of them are um, thinking about all the injustice that we're getting away with that, you know, they need to step in and be the, um, you know, the hero you know, I guess, so to speak, um, the white hero. Um, that's what I'm thinking. Seems very logical. I completely agree uh, in terms of whites. They are thinking about us and maintenance of their system, which is really one and the same constantly uh that absolutely that's why we talk about consistently being under surveillance that's why you have a product like uh the nigger manual i f forgot the whole title but i mean that's basically what it was from the sound clip but that's why you have a document like that uh someone finding that at work that is someone sitting around and thinking about niggers all the time and specifically thinking about violence because I, I think they said a lot of it was about lynching uh and killing black people that's what whites think about, harming, killing black people on a regular basis. Any other, what does it mean to be white? Talk about that on the program. Uh, any other folks, uh, any any other comments they wanted to make sure they get in? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, I was just thinking about that. Like when you use the term rampage, like, like that's the name 
I think that's the name of like an athlete, then they call him Rampage. The name of an athlete, you said? It's like an athlete or like a type of like fighter or something, a black fighter. Like they call him Rampage. Is that? Does anybody? Know, is there is there a, a athlete or a black fighter? Yes, yes, there yes. is. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Not up on my I'll, black fighter. Go ahead, sir. Oh, yeah. Like I, I was thinking about that and uh, um, that segment about the the word animal. Um, like toward the end, she was saying about how there we are we are taught how to have certain keywords for outsider groups. Like I didn't know what that what that meant necessarily. Like I don't know if she was trying to say that this applied to everybody or this was something that just uh white people pretty much are doing because that's really what it is. Like it was it came off very vague, like when um, when she was saying that. And uh the I think Maxine Waters, I think it was a segment um involving her and the uh race soldier president he was talking about her like having a low iq and uh i don't know if there hasn't been any kind of pushback like or any kind of um reaction in the news about that like that history of um i guess like bell curve and william shockley and that history of uh like black people being you know like compared to just being incompetent and uneducated and uh, like stupid and stuff like that. Was there any kind of, did you see any kind of media segments on like how they was talking about the IQ insult thus? Not as it relates to Trump's commentary about Maxine Waters, like not uh, putting that in context like this you know it's the same thing with the animals and calling black people's uh monkeys and gorillas or what have you i haven't seen any news reports main or yeah major news uh reports putting those comments into context no okay uh, thank you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very important though very important because that's constant uh all over the world black people are dumb ignorant they have lots of refined cute ways of being able to articulate that but that's the bottom line black people are are ignorant and stupid and dumb all of them including maxine waters president obama all of them uh with that uh we will call it a broadcast again uh for tuesday counter racist t-shirts i think it would be nice to have that uh on the record and specifically dated so that everybody who has a shirt can share what their experience has been how white people have responded non-white people if you again if you don't think or don't want to call in to share that if you could uh write that would be great uh just to be able to get a richer experience of what uh it's been like and i i would hope i'm not the only one if if people are wearing it and you know you're being yelled at or or you're having confrontations that would be something to know because that has not been my experience over the time that i've had it so i i am very eager uh to know what's happening uh with folks having the shirt on so hopefully uh this tuesday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific uh if you got a shirt dial in and let us know what your experience has been that's it thanks everyone for participating in the broadcast again be safe uh holiday people could be real reckless uh, for the next week, it seems. So keep that, be very mindful uh, of that and 
remain codified. I would definitely say this is a week, regardless of, you know, what you think about the suggestion. Sobriety might be the way to go uh, for this week uh, so that you can think clearly. Anything should happen. You can make phenomenal decisions to keep yourself safe. Uh, you and anybody you might be responsible for. I know Dr. Welsing would definitely suggest agree that we should take excellent care of our brain computers and stay sober uh, so that we can think and use our black brilliance to solve this here problem, the system of white supremacy. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up for sure this week, every day, buckled up, sober, every time you get in the vehicle, driver or passenger, race soldiers, they are going to be looking for black people to harass, molest this week. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact, badge or no. Buckled up every single time you are in the vehicle. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.